I'm Jesse. And I'm Josh. And this is Slice by Slice, a podcast where we dissect and discuss horror films by categories and subgenres, such as cults, clones, franchises, and directors' bodies of work. And of course, we can't dissect and discuss these films in the detail we do without spoilers. 34 episodes, and somebody finally spilled a beer. Yeah. And, and it, it was, was me. You. <laughs> Yeah, I like how you wait two episodes into my house. Nobody spilled anything at the fucking Halloween party, man. Come on. It was an accident. <laughs> well, we knocked out a franchise last week, so it's it's got to be director, right? Yep. So, Jordan Peele, we only got to knock out two movies, and it's not like there's a lot of discussion or thought that has to go into his movies, right? No, none at all. They're just run-of-the-mill, cookie-cutter, dime-a-dozen films. There's no way this episode could run over on time. You know, what's funny about that is I looked this morning after uploading my notes and I haven't seen this many pages since Paranormal Activity. <laughs> Wasn't that like 14 movies? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Six, but yes. I got my work cut out for me for the next week, I guess. Well, I want to thank everybody because uh, as of right now, we're pretty much at 5K downloads. Yeah, I got to figure out a new dance because the one I did before is it's like the roll in the dice. It's the only thing I got. Yeah, because at the 1K dance, he said, I'll do another one at 5K. We have no clue what it's going to be. No, it's probably just going to be the same dance. It's it's a sequel. Come to terms with it. <laughs> <laughs> but before we dive into Jordan Peele, we got a couple of corrections or updates from the last episode we need to cover. Yeah. One, somehow I forgot to mention my fucking awesome Christmas gifts from Josh and his wife that I literally opened 15 minutes before we started recording, but I was so nervous to jump back into an episode that I forgot to mention them. You were excited. Their presents for me were so awesome that I realized how lame mine was. But (laughs) so I open this bag and the first thing I see is the novelization of Halloween three season of the witch, which I said, I've always wanted to read and it's a pain in the ass to find. It really is. Yep. So I now have that. You're going to knock that out. You got the cheap nicotine stain one from eBay. I was nice and didn't get you the cheaper cat pee on one. Ooh, I'd rather have nicotine than cat pee. But under that, I could see there was like a poster tube. So I was like, I'll save that for last. I saw these awesome Halloween pins, right? Like those two sets of three, I think. They're all badass. I just got to figure out what I'm going to fucking christen with them. And then I get to the poster tube and I open the poster tube. And it is a autographed Fright Night poster by Tom fucking Holland. And it was amazing and brought a tear to my eye. Yeah. See, my wife is awesome because I didn't get you. <laughs> and uh, the one thing I remember. Because I have a bad memory, like I've mentioned on this podcast. Yeah, you got us a pillow that says, does this pillow smell like chloroform? Which is going to be even funnier when I get some chloroform. I got to (laughs) go. So you're all invited to my next Halloween party. Separate nights. Is this a Weinstein party? I think it is. (laughs) We do have a couple updates, though, from the last episode as well. The Nicolas Cage movie that I said was very Lovecraftian is literally a Lovecraft story. (laughs) And it's called Color Out of Space, and I can't wait to see it. Is that like coloring outside the lines? Exactly. Okay. I do want to bring up the pink guitar debacle, that color calibration DVD that I smarted off about. Mm-hmm. It's still in the shrink wrap. <laughs> <laughs> the guitar's red. <laughs> the guitar's red. <laughs> is what Josh is trying to say. And he didn't just say, no, I think it's pink. He's like, I'm going to give you a color calibration DVD. Blah, 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 blah. You can see what pink looks like. He was oh, wrong. But in all seriousness, if I sound a little weird, uh, this time it's Josh that's bad sick. And also if I sound a little goofy, I am on prescription cough medicine, which I'm taking half doses of for the sake of the podcast. 
Yeah, I was sick for like the last four episodes catching shit from working at a school and having, well, I have three kids, but two of them in school and we're just passing stuff back and forth for like two months, but now I'm fine and Josh is sick. Yeah. And then I got the wife sick and I've been sick for a week and a half now and she's been sick for one week and is almost fine. So it's like Orlando all over again. She's stronger than you. Eh. We went and saw Gretel and Hansel and... It's brand fucking new, so I'm not going to spoil it, but I will say that the wife was shocked when it was over, and I said I really liked it, because everything about this movie, anyone who knows me or has listened to me on this podcast, it does all the things I say I hate. I literally told her that it. I sat there and I said, it's obvious what's about to happen, this is boring as shit, and it's too slow, and I can't look away. Like, it's that, it sucked me in that friggin' hardcore, and it's PG-13. But you're basically accidentally doing a, a free plug right now. So should people go see it? People should definitely go see it. It's not cutaway gore. There's one really gory scene that had they, it's one of those you could tell if they had just added blood to it, it would have never gotten the movie and they just did it without blood and it still worked. Interesting. Um, it is very dark. It gets darker. It leaves you with a what the fuck question at the end that makes the whole thing that just happened Go even more what the fuck. Okay. And that's all I'm going to say because it's too damn new. So don't wait for streaming or anything. If you're able to go to the theater and see it. It's yeah, worth yeah. It. If you like dark fantasy imagery and something that'll really suck you in and tells a known story, but at the same time turns it on its head without it being Ghostbusters with an all female cast kind of turning on its head, like really taking a story and figuring out a way to twist it instead of turning it, if that makes sense, came out really good. And I wasn't, I didn't watch the trailers. Like the wife was like, we're going to go see this. I'm like, fine, whatever. I go in sick as a dog. I spill Coke all over myself and I still had a fabulous time. That's interesting because not only have I purposely not watched the trailer for it, I wasn't even sure if I was going to watch it when it was streaming. Like I haven't even given it a thought. So it's nice to hear that. Speaking of Ghostbusters. Okay. Bill Murray's officially in on the remake. Oh, really? And I, whoa, I mean, whoa, whoa. the the one that's fixing to come out. Or yeah, not this? the remake. I'm sorry, the okay. sequel. The oh, sequel. Okay, I was like, there's another one. No, 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 the sequel. <laughs> and this, I'm not surprised because he retired from acting. But Rick Moranis is not going to be in it. Oh, I mean, they asked him, and he just, I mean, he retired from acting. I think it was when his wife died and everything. Yeah, and he started taking care of the kids and everything full time. But uh, I don't know. It would have been cool to see him, even if it was a quick cameo. Yeah. He has held real firm on his whole thing about, I made enough money to be set. I'm sticking with my family. Bye, Hollywood. Thank you for your time. Yeah, and I can respect that. But anyways, I guess I really have to keep with this New Year resolution on the shorter episodes. Yeah, sorry. I wasn't helpful there. And Jordan Peele likes to hide a bunch of shit in his movies, so there's lots of talking about them. Yep. And we are honestly probably not going to do them justice. And I'm, I'm kind of happy that we're doing it this soon because it seems like if we wait two more years, we'd have to do like seven or eight movies instead of just the two right now that we can cover. I did look, he's, he's got a lot of producer credits out now or coming out, Okay, but he's sticking firm on like, if I'm directing it, I wrote it and it's my story and I can really appreciate that. Yeah. Honestly, I liked to get out when I saw it. I saw I was like kind of eh on the fence until I watched it for the podcast. And then I watched it twice in the same day trying to catch stuff. <laughs> But the thing that was most shocking to me is I enjoyed Get Out when I saw it originally, yeah. and I still enjoyed it when I saw it. But when I was actually like taking notes for the podcast, I realized, I mean, this guy's craft. He's like honed it in his first movie. Yeah. Like between the cinematography and the music. And I know that's not all him, but he's still like the, the boss, right? Like when it's happening. And I'm like, this guy knows old horror movies and he knows how to throw stuff in. 
and we're going to get into things that he does that are like throwbacks to Halloween. Like we were making fun of slumber party massacre for like straight up ripping off stuff. But then like his stuff that he'll do is like really kind of paying homage to it and really an Easter egg more than anything. And you just got to kind of catch it. Yeah. This comedian comes along and knocks it out of the park. And I think it was, uh, I think it was the thing I was watching with Jason Blum where he comes right out the gate and it's like his first movie and he's an auteur. You can already tell that's a Jordan Peele movie. I was shocked. So Us was not a Blumhouse movie, right? Correct. Jason Blum was attached to it, but Blumhouse couldn't afford to produce it. Oh, is that what it was? Yep. So Universal went ahead and said, we'll go ahead and do this one for you. We'll bring uh, Jason on as a producer. Okay. Because I was wondering, because, you know, we said really early on the podcast that, I mean, Blumhouse, they've kind of been like the shining light of modern horror. Yeah. And it was really cool to see them have, you know, Jordan Peele's first movie. And he is one of the new horror directors, like to lead us into the next generation. And then I realized the second movie wasn't on Blumhouse when I was doing this for the podcast. And uh, I was like, I wonder what happened there. So it was just a money thing. Just a money thing. I mean, there's a lot of famous actors in there and actresses. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a big jump up in, in budget um, over four times more. Oh, really? Yeah. We'll have to get to that when we get to the movies. But we're here to talk about the man. So we got to start with him. The man, the legend. Honestly. Before he even thought about doing, well, I can't say that because apparently he's been wanting to make horror movies since he was a child. Before he even mentioned making Get Out, like watching the Key and Pill skits on YouTube, that was always the thing like randomly at a party. It's like, have you seen this? Yeah. You know, and and just, I remember first hearing that he was making a horror movie and I was like, what? (laughs) And uh, so pleasantly surprised I saw the film. But let's get into his backstory a little bit. He was born February 21st, 1979. So he's three years older than us. Yeah, not that far removed. He is biracial. He has a white mother and uh, had a black father who passed away when he was six. And that was kind of like an influence for some of his stories because he said, you know, have to grow up in New York, you know, with a white mother. And then he was of color. And, you know, the way he would be treated sometimes, the way people would look at him, the way he'd get treated at school. One of the most fascinating things I saw was he interviewed Bill Clinton as a kid in 1993. Okay, so they did. It was either CBS or NBC. I don't remember the station. I'm sorry, but they set this thing up and they had, I want to say it was like eight kids and they got to ask Bill Clinton uh, questions and he had to answer them like right there on the spot. His question was about fathers who either could not afford to pay child support or just refused to do it. And what was his plans to help the single mothers trying to raise their children? Okay. And when you see him and how serious he is, you're like, this guy has a career in politics. (laughs) Became a comedian. (laughs) That's probably for the best. But he always said being biracial made him feel like an outsider, and he always had to pick other when he would fill out paperwork and stuff. He's like, yeah. what do I put? And, like, you know, the way he talks, you know, because he, he just said, like, the way his accent and his voice and the way he carried himself was one way, and people were like, your mother's not this, and your father's not that. And it was just like he just put up with that his whole life. And after, you know, he had always been in the arts. He had been in a horror. He said he grew up, like, they filmed Rosemary's Baby like two blocks from his house or his apartment or whatever. Grew up watching all the old, same horror movies we did. Like I said, he's only three years older than us, right? Yeah, and he's got a soft spot for 80 slashers. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. He said, well, we'll get to that. I actually have his horror trivia. But he went to college in New York. I'm sorry I didn't write the the college name down, but his major was puppetry. He wanted to be a puppeteer. Okay. and Take that, Jeff Dunham. (laughs) Exactly. And while he was in school, he fell in love with improv. And he joined an improv troupe with his roommate, and she was actually one of the writers in the Key and Peele show. Okay. Also, I can't think of her name right now, but while his improv troupe was doing their thing at uh, various comedy clubs, there was another one that had 
Keegan-Michael Key in it. And they met each other, became instant friends. And I think Jordan actually took like a joke that, that Keegan-Michael Key had done and used it in his thing. And it was kind of like a little joke with them too. And they became friends and started doing stuff together. And then they both ended up on Mad TV where they were both actors and writers on the show. Mad TV was always better than SNL to me. They were, they were different. I liked them in different ways, but I thought it was funnier. I liked them hands di- down. I liked them in different decades. Yeah. What's well, the thing? <laughs> Saturday Night Live is so hit or miss. Yeah. But Jordan Peele was always great at doing impersonations, both on Mad TV and just on the side. Yeah. And Saturday Night Live during the writer strike was casting for Obama impersonator because he'd just been elected president. And Jordan Peele's like, I'm perfect for this. And he auditioned and they wanted him. But he still had one year left in his Mad TV contract. And even though there was a strike, they wouldn't let him out of it. Uh, so he couldn't do it. But I don't know if you've ever seen Jordan Peele's Obama impersonations on the Key and Peele skits. Fucking fantastic. Yeah, not in a while, I'll be honest. Well, it's, uh, I can't remember what Key's character's name supposed to be, but it's supposed to be like Obama's so quiet and nice that this guy's his uh, emotion translator. Okay. Have you not seen any of these skits? <laughs> Maybe I haven't. I'll show you later because it'll be like, I just want to tell the people. And then he's like, you motherfuckers. <laughs> it's fucking great. Okay, I can see the picture you're painting. Uh, we'll pull it up before I leave. But he, he does a great Obama impersonation. And this is going to come up in his direction style here in a little bit, too. Okay. But after Mad TV, they got together and made the Key and Pill show, which I've probably referenced so many times already in these first few minutes, which was just, it was great. And it was a hit. And everybody loved it. And he always had dreams of working in horror movies. He loved them when he was growing up had a list of favorites and he just kind of felt like it was time to start making movies, but he applied for the emoji movie or they called him. I'm not really sure who called who first, but they wanted him to play the poop emoji so he could tell people he was the shit. Ooh, that's a good one. But he's like, fuck this. I'm out. And then like three days passed. He's like, I wonder how much it pays. <laughs> so he called, I mean, you got to wonder that, right? Cause he's like, do I want to be the poop emoji? So he calls the studio and he says, how much does it pay? I'm like, oh, we're sorry. We already gave the job to Sir Patrick Stewart. <laughs> He's now the poop emoji. And he literally said, fuck this. I quit acting. Yeah. That was how he quit acting. Yeah, because now it's like, man, I turned it down because it was shit. And Sir Patrick fucking Stewart's like, I've been a Nazi. I'm not too good to be shit. <laughs> he did play a Nazi. Now, he's a fantastic actor, and his voice is probably the most proper British voice I ever think of. Yeah. I haven't seen that shit. Some part of me feels like we went too far. <laughs> I will say that I, I have seen the movie 50 times probably because my kids wanted to watch it and they loved it. And honestly, my son, Aiden, he wanted to watch it because there was talking poop in it. Well, <laughs> but is, it took. is it at least entertaining like the Lego movies? Yes, okay. it is funny and it's self-aware and makes fun of itself. I'm not saying this is like the greatest animated movie of all time, but when you hear Patrick Stewart's voice coming out of a talking pile of poo... <laughs> It's the best thing since weird science. It's awesome. <laughs> but after quitting acting, because he didn't get the job as a talking pile of shit, basically, <laughs> if we want to just call it what it is. I'd change careers too, man. <laughs> but after retiring from acting, his next two major milestones was meeting his now wife, Chelsea Peretti, having a son. Oh, and directing movies and winning Oscars right out the gate. Yeah, like right out the gate. But before we get into his Oscar-winning masterpiece here, I wanted to go over his horror trivia because I just think it's neat that he has this. We haven't covered a director yet that had like a straight-up horror trivia interview yet. Yeah, because most of them are all, uh, well, I didn't know any other way to get into the industry other than horror, so. (laughs) He chose to do this. He's crazy, just like us. 
But he starts off the interview. It's on YouTube. I want to say it's a Wall Street Journal interview, but he starts it off saying, I'm not scared of Jason. I'm just not. (laughs) I don't know why. That's literally what it opens with. And uh, he says the first horror movie that actually got him was The Fly with Jeff Goldblum. Okay. He just said it like he was way too young to be watching it when he saw it, (laughs) and it messed him up, which is basically car stories with different movies. His favorite horror movie theme song, Nightmare on Elm Street. And he starts humming the music and stuff, and somehow it's more creepy hearing Jordan Peele hum it <laughs> than the actual song. But it's because it, I just think it's Twilight Zone now when I hear his voice. Oh, okay. His favorite B-rated horror movie of all time, Critters. Is he my best friend? I was going to say, I can get behind this. I can replace you with Jordan <laughs> Peele, apparently. He likes Critters. You can't afford him. Oh. <laughs> Scariest villain, Michael Myers. Yeah. Still my best friend. He loves him some Mikey. And this is a cool question. They said, if you could make an Avengers team of villains, who would be on it? <laughs> he said, Freddy Krueger, Candyman, one of the balls from Phantasm, because they fuck shit up. <laughs> Chucky says somebody could come in low and a graboid that they would all ride like a spaceship. <laughs> <laughs> I love Jordan Peele. Yes. He's, you know, we always talk about like that. I want to drink a beer with this guy. He's on yeah, the yeah. list. He's on this, the list. This right here is why we're covering him. <laughs> I mean, he's a fan. I mean, he's honestly a fan. He did get famous, but it was nothing to do with horror. Yeah. He's doing comedy, and he's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to make a horror movie. <laughs> I'm almost done, and we're going to jump in the movies, guys. I'm sorry. They asked him, what are your least favorite tropes in a horror movie? And he said, dark houses, like creepy, dark situations. He likes taking a bright and happy place, like a nice, expensive hotel in The Shining, and making fucked up shit happen during the day. Okay. Like, taking, that's kind of his thing. Taking the yeah. familiar and making it. Okay. And instead of it like being like a creepy house, he'd rather it be like a happy place with bad things happening, which happens in the first movie we're going to cover. Yeah. His favorite trope in a horror movie, improvised weaponry. Oh, okay. He loves that you can pick up anything in a fucking horror movie and kill somebody with it. And you can see that big time in the second movie we're going to cover. Oh, yeah. Favorite final girl, Jada Pinkett Smith. Well, I guess she was just Jada Pinkett at that time from uh, Tilson the Crit Demon Knight. Okay. And uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, she was a badass final girl. She ended up being the Demon Knight, right? So. Last one, favorite horror movie performance, Shelley Duvall in The Shining. What Kubrick did to her <laughs> to get that performance, though? <laughs> I know. That'll be interesting to cover at some point. Yeah, and for those of you that don't know, he didn't Weinstein her. That's not where I'm going with this. Yeah. Why have we made so many Weinstein jokes Because he's back in the damn news because the court battle's finally going and people are testifying. There's wild accusations about what his junk looks like and all yeah. kinds of stuff. I don't, I, anyways, it's fresh on my mind, I guess. All right, we've talked about the man and his taste in horror, which I think is impeccable. But we kind of go into his first movie, Get Out, which just came out in 2017. I know, right? It's like crazy. We're talking about two movies this recent because, I mean, it might be a shtick of mine, but I go back to the well to like the 80s so much that it's interesting covering something so new. Before we did this, I was afraid he was going to start making other blockbuster hits that weren't horror. Yeah. And I wanted to cover them all like his two movies were horror. But then after doing the research and watching all this, I don't think he's going to do anything that's not horror. No, not not for a while, I don't think. He does do producer credits on things, but like written and directed by, it's going to be a Jordan Peele original horror movie, I feel like. Yeah. So the name of the movie is obviously said in the movie, but he got the idea for the movie because that's what people regularly yell at the screen when they're in the theater watching a movie. Don't go in there or get out. Yep. He has a lot of horror movies that he, he just remembers from his childhood and growing up that, that he's inspired by as a director, but specifically for this film, it was Night of the Living Dead, and that was the black hero yep. in the movie, Rosemary's Baby, 
which I think that's just the overall level of dread. That's me talking, but like, it does just like keep building. And the most obvious one to me, the Stepford wives. Oh yeah. Which it doesn't go full Stepford wives anywhere near it, but it's just like, it's just on the cusp enough. It's that everything's perfect. But if you could just scratch the surface, that angle of it, which it goes without saying that these two movies are definitely psychological horror. Oh yeah. We're definitely going that route. And with the whole, Twilight Zone, Outer Limits, that kind of shit. He really liked that shit yes. too, and it really shows in his work. And I will say, we usually credit me for being really good at guessing movies right out the gate. And I was not accurate on this one. I went more of the Stepford Wives. Oh, okay. On like the bodies being used as like robots, kind of more than what actually happens. Okay. But uh, it was filmed in 23 days, which I mean, horror movies usually have like short things, but I feel that's more like John Carpenter's Halloween. Made it just like a small amount of time. Yeah. I will say it's not literally a single location, but it's close enough to being. Yeah. That that probably helped. Four and a half million dollar budget. $255 million at the box office. It was slightly profitable. Just a little bit. He could pretty much make any horror movie he wants now. Which is insane to say for a directorial debut. Yeah. He had written one movie before this. Him and Key did Keanu, where they're trying to rescue their oh, cat yeah. or whatever. yeah. They didn't direct it, though. They just wrote it. Yeah. But they were already writing for Mad TV. See, he's no stranger to writing, but it's always been comedy. So not only was this his directorial debut, but it was nominated for the Oscars for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, and Best Actor. So it was a dud. That, that's what you're saying. Exactly. <laughs> Except for he was high on the favorites list, and he actually won Best Screenplay for his first movie. There you go. He has been approached by Universal Pictures to make a sequel because it made money. Of course, duh. <laughs> and uh, he said he would only do it if the story is right because he doesn't do movies for cash grabs. Yeah. Please stick to that, Jordan. Yeah. I appreciate it. One thing that was so apparently obvious to me the second time I watched Get Out is the score. Yeah. It's strong all the way through it. And it's strong into us. And they were both done by Michael Abels. And it's his first scores ever. Yep. Keep the sky, Jordan. <laughs> no, it really is fitting and iconic and classic already. And last thing I'm going to say for I jump into the movie, but when he directs, he regularly uses Tracy Morgan, Forrest Whitaker, and Barack Obama's voices to direct the movie. Okay. Which, I mean, if you watched Key and Pill show or any of that shit, he does all of them perfectly. Oh. So, I mean, he just starts talking as one of them. And I'm sure there's other voices. Those are just the only three that I could find mentioned. <laughs> But I could see him doing that. You're just sitting there and like Barack Obama starts fucking telling you what to do with your scene. <laughs> and, and you have to keep a straight face and then like choke somebody to death. Because choking people to death is a thing in his movies. <laughs> That's like his shtick. It is. But let's dive right into the movie now that we're nine hours into recording. Sweet. We see a lone black male walking through the burbs. And these burbs felt really reminiscent of Haddonfield. And then I later saw an interview with Jordan Peele, where he purposely found a neighborhood that looked like Haddonfield. There you go. But the man is on his cell phone, and he's talking to someone, and he's looking for an address. And he's cracking jokes about the neighborhood, and he's saying he feels really uncomfortable, and he sticks out like a sore thumb out here. And as he gets off his phone, we see a white sports car drive the opposite way, and it pops a Yui. And then it parks right next to him, and he's looking at the car, and he's like, no, fuck this, I'm going home. Yeah. <laughs> and he turns around to leave, and... Oh my God, the cinematography on the scene. It's following him down the sidewalk and you can see the car beside him. And then it spins around the other way as he turns around down the sidewalk to walk. And all you can see is the sidewalk behind him. 
But then when he steps in the street, it cuts around a tree and you can see the car with the door open. Yep. And it's just like, oh, fuck, he's behind you. It's like what you're guessing. And that's literally what happens. You see a man in a black plate mail mask come out from behind a tree and put him in a chokehold, drag him off, throw him in the trunk, drive off, opening credits. I will say, I don't know, the, that opening scene is very scream. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Because like it's like a really strong opening scene. And it is kind of in vain of that. And a lot of people don't really do it that way. No. And it didn't feel like it was a ripoff either. Like, it was just like, the only reason why I even realized that, I was like, that's a very strong opening scene. I haven't seen anything like that since. And I started thinking of Casey. Okay. Right? Like, you know, getting killed at, in, at the beginning of Scream. Yeah. It's like you're just dropped into something that's going on that's seemingly mundane that quickly goes, oh, fuck. <laughs> right, right. And then it's not even one of your main characters. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. It was just, it was very strong, spoke volumes to me, and it's very brief. Yeah. But this was the moment that I knew Jordan Peele was going to be a good director because the pacing of the scene of a guy just walking down the sidewalk on a cell phone, the cinematography, and the way that car jumps out on you, and the fucking score made this general creepiness. Like that, I was like, I'm pumped. I want to watch the rest of this movie. Yep. And uh, that's what an opening scene is supposed to do for you. But at this point, after the credits, we're introduced to our main characters, Chris and Rose. In Chris's apartment. And for one, we see that they're a mixed couple. And normally, that would be irrelevant in a movie. But with this movie and director, it's a very relevant point to make. <laughs> we see that Chris is a photographer. We can tell this because there's artistic photos all over the apartment, along with cameras and lenses. And we find out that they're going to go to the Armitage residence for the weekend to visit Rose's parents. And this is the first time Chris has ever met them. Oh, he's going to meet the Fockers. Oh, but Chris has an important question that he wants answered. He wants to know if Rose's parents know that he's black. And she says, no, why should they? Mom and dad, my, uh, my black boyfriend will be coming up this weekend. And I just don't want you to be shocked that he's a black man. Chris just doesn't want to be ran off with a shotgun though, right? Like he doesn't know what he's walking into. And Rose lets him know that her dad would have voted for Obama a third term if he could have. And he's definitely going to let him know that. <laughs> she just knows. <laughs> On the drive, we find out that Chris smokes cigarettes. Rose doesn't like this. And uh, she's played by Allison Williams, which I just know her from Girls and like the live action Peter Pan. She's also Brian Williams' daughter. Oh, okay. I'm sure you remember him from the news. I, well, yeah, anyways. <laughs> <laughs> and we also find out that he has a friend named Rod who's fucking hilarious. He works for the TSA and he's watching Chris's dog for the weekend who has IBS. <laughs> Makes it very clear to point that out. <laughs> And they're talking on the phone, and uh, I know, like, Rose is, like, talking to Rod, like, they're hooking up or whatever. It's, like, a big joke, I guess. Yeah. But uh, Rod ends the call by telling Chris he should not ever go to a white girl's parents' house. She doing licking your mouths or something? Dude, he is so damn funny. The drive's pretty much uneventful, and nothing happens. Oh, shit, except for they hit a fucking deer. <laughs> and Chris is racially profiled by a cop. When when I, when this scene came up, not the cop part, um, I immediately <laughs> thought about your story about your last drive to fucking Orlando. You thought about it. I definitely had flashbacks of hitting a werewolf. And the wife's like, do deer really jump that high? I'm like, yes. <laughs> Jordan Peele did the sound of the deer, by the way. Oh, really? He also does the mind is a terrible thing to waste commercial that Rod's watching. Okay. He, his voice cameos in his movies, not him. Yeah, yeah. The next movie, I knew he did stuff, but I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah. Okay. It's funny that he did the dying deer sound. But uh, the deer was a good, legit jump scare. I had already seen this movie twice, and when watching it for the podcast, I still jumped. Yeah. Because it comes out of fucking nowhere, and it's not like a cat jumping in the screen. It's done really well. Yeah. We see that Rose is really protective 
of Chris to this cop. Like, because the cop wants to see his driver's license. And he's like, he wasn't even driving. You can't do this. This is racial profiling. And I mean, we already gave a spoiler warning. So I'm assuming you know how this movie ends. Yeah. If not, I'm sorry. I'm going to ruin it a little bit. But I just want to use two words for you. Paper trail. She did not want record that he was pulled over. Exactly. But we jump from there pretty much to her parents' house, the Armitage residence. We see that Rose's house is really nice and really big, so they're obviously rich. Her parents are super laid back, and we see that her dad is Dean, a medical doctor, who's played by Bradley motherfucking Whitford himself. Yeah, fucking merman. And we see that her mom, Missy, who's played by Catherine Keener, which we all know from like 40-year-old virgin and shit, but she's been a bunch of stuff. Oh, that's yeah, what I was thinking yeah, of. She's yeah. a gilf. Yeah, yeah. But uh, she's a shrink, and that's her mom. And her little brother, Jeremy, is in med school taking after his old pops. And uh, we find out that Rose's grandpa lost a race in the 1936 Olympics to Jesse Owens in front of Hitler. But Dean gives Chris a tour of the house, and they walk by the basement. And it's sealed off due to the black mold down there. And yeah. I just think that's an interesting choice of words. A little too on the nose? Or was he just trying to hammer it in? That's the thing about this movie. When you watch it after you know the end, like Jordan Peele is hammering the ending to you the whole time. I watched a thing on that particular line, the the theory thing where he was reading stuff. I, I haven't even seen a video on it. Oh, it, it's he's, he's reading a, a thing on theories about the movie. And they talk about, oh, black mold like this is where you mold the black people right. and he looks up at the camera and he's like yeah yeah that's exactly what i meant when i wrote that <laughs> i didn't think the mold like molding clay but i was just like i don't know the use of the word black there yeah and this is the end of of kind of an uncomfortable scene because he's like come over here my man come yeah, check yeah. this out my man he, he calls him my man the whole fucking time but during this tour we see walter the groundskeeper and georgina the housekeeper and Dean purposely mentions that the residence is in the middle of nowhere where it's completely quiet. Yeah. Because that's not creepy or a warning. Closest neighbors across the lake or some <laughs> shit. Exactly. And also, Bradley Whitford, being the gym that he is, does not mention the Obama thing. I would have voted for Obama for a third term if I could. Best president in my lifetime, hands down. But the whole family sits down for lunch, and they want to know all about Chris. And we find out that his dad was never in the picture, really. And that his mom died in a hit and run when he was 11. They notice that Chris is a smoker because he's like tapping and beating on shit. And we find out that Missy, as a shrink, is trained to hypnotize people and she can make him quit smoking that way. He's not fucking interested, nor should he be. No, fuck that. And then we find out that Rose's family has a giant get together once a year and it happens to be this weekend and she forgot about it. Uh huh. Sure, she did. <laughs> That's how I got suckered into family events when dating, too. <laughs> also, somewhere in here, Rose's brother Jeremy shows up, and we quickly find out he's the douchebag O'Neill of the film. Yeah, he's like, he looks like Macaulay Culkin on a bender. <laughs> he's definitely on a bender. He seems so coked out the entire time. His name's Caleb Landry Jones, and I looked him up on IMDb, and I had seen lots of movies that he was in. Okay. But I didn't remember him, which makes me think that he's like, doesn't look or act the same in this movie as he does. And other things. Oh, uh, okay. Like maybe he was just like really out there in this one. But I guess this family likes to eat because I'm pretty sure it like fades straight into a dinner scene almost from lunch, right? Pretty much. And we see that Jeremy is definitely a douchebag and his sister Rose actually calls him that and confirms it. She doesn't use O'Neill though because that's, you know, <laughs> trademark pending. And um, we find out that he's into MMA and he lets Chris know that with his build and genetic makeup, he'd be a fucking beast. That's one of those hits you on the head when you watch the movie. Oh, yeah. But it's because he's drunk and his parents start getting on to him, right? Because he's starting to slip into some shitty shit. And 
But Chris lets him know that he thinks MMA is too violent. And over both meals, we realize that Georgina's fucking weird. <laughs> I mean, I'm just, I don't know what else to call it. <laughs> but basically, Chris is kind of not really chastised, but there's odd things said to him by everybody yeah. about all these scenes. And when they go to bed at night, Rose points that out because she's so embarrassed of her family because the my man this and the way her brother was being an asshole and that he never treated any of her white boyfriends that way. I think she says something like specifically like that. Yeah. And I do want to point out, I should have said this way earlier. When he's worried about meeting her parents, he specifically says, because you've never dated a black guy before, right? And she says, yes. But it's so important later in the movie, and I forgot to say that part. But, uh, yeah, so she's saying, like, like, normally her boyfriends don't get treated that way, and just because he's black, they're doing it to him, right? Exactly. And what you can definitely tell, though, is Rose is definitely on his side and protective, though. Yes. And a lovable character at this point. It's one of her strong points in this movie. She still bothers me through the whole movie, man. Oh, really? Really? Just something about her. I don't know what it is. That's because you saw the end, man. Yeah, maybe. That's the way she eats. <laughs> but after a little bit of bow wow, chicka wow wow, and some sleep, Chris wakes up for a smoke, because that's what you do after you bang and sleep, right? Yeah. But Chris goes outside to smoke a cigarette, and he sees Walter running full speed at him, and then he darts away, and it's on as hell. This is the first part of the movie where I went, what the fuck? Exactly. But I mean, it got me. I was like, what's happening? That was the first like Twilight Zone feeling yeah. watching this movie, right? But the first time I finished this movie, I was really angry that I didn't catch on to something at this point. The running. Yeah. Because his father never got over losing to Jesse Owens, right? Yep. And I don't know why I'm tippy-toeing around it. I hope you've seen the movie if you're listening to this, but maybe you just like the sound of Josh and I's voice. Yeah, th- these these two films, we really have to say, if you're listening to us because you like listening to us and you're like, oh, they talked about this movie and that sounds cool, I should check it out. These are like M. Night Shyamalan movies. If you actually have any interest in these at all and you haven't seen them, please see them before listening to us because we're going to f- destroy what's right. what's behind the curtain. And I will say, I'm glad you brought up that comparison. M. Night Shyamalan makes good movies with like a plot twist, but the problem with those movies, you usually can't rewatch them. Yeah. A couple of them, like Sixth Sense, you're like, oh, I got to re-see that, see if I can catch something. But that wasn't something he was able to master as he went. Like some of the movies, they're just one and done. I can watch these Jordan Peele movies over and over again after I figure something out because I'm like, what? How did I not catch that? I mean, that is a skill to, to be able to do that in movies with these kind of plot twists. But yeah, there's only a couple episodes we've ever said this, but if you've never seen the movie, watch it and then listen. Yeah. I'm all over the place, guys. I'm sorry. But not only does he have Walter run full speed at him and then cut away, he also sees Georgina like he thinks she's looking at him. but She's like looking at the window, but it's actually a reflection and she's acting really weird and fucking with her hair. And he just wants to know what's up with these people. Right. Yep. He goes in the house. I don't even think he smokes a cigarette. I think he like puts it in the pack. He's like, fuck this. I'm going to bed. (laughs) I'm done. And when he walks in, Missy's awake. Rose's mother. And she gets onto him for smoking, and she's really angry that he would do it around her daughter. Yep. I think it's actually that he doesn't want the goods damaged. Yeah, because she's like, that's so unhealthy, and I care about my daughter. But she starts to very calmly ask him questions about his past and himself in this really relaxing tone, in this really relaxing voice. And she's stirring her teacup. And it's very audible, the way she's stirring the teacup. Yeah, but it's just as slow and just as calm. And she was perfect for that scene right there. Yeah. And as she makes him relax more and more, she puts him into a state of hypnosis. Now we're in the twilight zone. Yes, very much. <laughs> Floating in the space, stars and all. But Missy's whole demeanor as she hypnotizes him is super creepy. And her acting is really on point and amazing right here. 
And when she tells him to sink in, you're like, oh, shit. Especially when they put the, the effect on her voice. Now sink into the floor. Wait, 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 wait. Sink. And then we see him fade into the floor. And we basically have an out-of-body experience, right? Yeah. Because he falls to the floor and he's floating in space, just like the Twilight Zone. And Missy leans in at him, like at his actual body that's still in the chair, and lets him know that he's now in the sunken place. And, and over then, there's the further. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then Chris wakes up in bed, and he finds his phone unplugged, and it's like half-charged. And he's thinking he just dreamed this shit, right? But the next day, he's just walking around trying to live his normal day, walking around with his camera taking photos, and he sees Georgina acting fucking weird, surprise. And then he spots Walter chopping wood and he walks up to him and he's trying to talk to him and get some info out of him and, and figure out what's going on. Walter talks very odd and old timey to him. And once again, I'm angry at myself yeah. at the end of the movie because I should have caught something there. And, and the takeaway here is that Walter asked Chris if the hypnotism worked. And he's like, what? <laughs> and, and it's because Walter's like, I saw you in Miss Armitage's chair. She does wonders or something, right? So he knows he didn't dream it. And then he pulls out a cigarette and tries to smoke it, and he doesn't want it. Yep. He meets up with Rose, and he's like, I think your mom hypnotized me, because <laughs> it's a normal conversation couples have. And she, she's like, what? And apologizes to him, like this isn't the first time, right? And he also lets her know that, that Walter talked real hostile to him, and he didn't like the way he treated him, and he thinks he might be jealous. <laughs> and she's like, oh, you think I got a chance? Yes. She's, <laughs> she's like the fun, like, lovable girlfriend in this movie. Jordan Peele cast her perfectly. Um, but for me, we pretty much cut to the crazy party, right? Because you just start seeing lots of rich old white people show up yep. and, and really expensive cars. And they're all hugging Walter. Once again, why is Walter the groundskeeper greeting everyone? Why did I not figure this out the first time? Yeah. And I want to say it was around this part that Ginger called it out. I could see that. Like, I'm mad that I didn't catch it. Oh, yeah. On rewatch, you, uh, at least for me, because like I said, I didn't get any of it on the first watch. And on the first rewatch, it's like, I'm a fucking idiot. Exactly. But everyone at this party is super interested in Chris, and they are super nice to him, other than asking him really odd questions about sports and hobbies that they're really into and wondering how good he is at them. <laughs> they all seem to be really into black people. Black is in fashion. Also, all the women keep commenting on how good looking he is, and they keep asking Rose, is it really better with a black man? But yeah, they are, it, it's getting more and more creepy like he's on display at the zoo or something. But Chris is understandably uncomfortable with all of this and he walks off to take pictures because what do we all do when we're uncomfortable? You go off and do the thing that's like natural to you makes you happy, right? Yeah, he doesn't smoke anymore so he's got to at least take pictures. But as he's walking around taking pictures, he sees another black man with his back to him and he decides to walk up to him and let him know that it's nice to see another brother around here. And when he turns around, we see that he talks like an old timey white guy again. Yeah, like white as fuck. Yeah, it's super white. I don't even know anybody that talks like this. And when, I have old white people in my family. When Dave Chappelle is doing his white voice. Chip. It's Chip as an old man. Chip. I want to know how we get Dave Chappelle in some of this Jordan Peele action. He won a Grammy for uh, Best Comedy Album. It was really funny. They were interviewing some of the other people like Ellen DeGeneres and all the other nominees. And they all were like, yeah, I'm here to lose to Dave Chappelle tonight. Like they all knew. <laughs> they all knew. It's like, fuck it. I lost. It's really funny. Uh, just a lot of respect though, right? Like, yeah. you're like he, he's funny. He's going to win. But not only is he like Chip, we also see that he's married to a much older white woman. And at this point in theaters, that's when I started realizing something was up. I just wasn't on the right <laughs> trail yet. I was still thinking more Stepford Wives. Yeah, I was thinking brainwashing at this point. 
But if you're paying attention, you notice that this is the man that's kidnapped at the beginning of the movie. I didn't notice. I honestly don't think I caught it either. Like, I don't know. It's something like the hat and then like the, everyone's really good at doing a Stepford wife face on this movie. Yeah. Just like in us, everybody's really good at doing a creepy smile. And it actually changes what they look like to me. Cause it's just such a like, hi, you know, it's just, and, and you got, who the fuck wears a tweed hat and jacket like that? <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> chip, but I don't know if I caught it the first time. I, I couldn't tell you cause I saw it in theaters, but like when I was watching it for the podcast, I was like, holy shit, it's the guy from the beginning. <laughs> but Chris just kind of, he's already creeped out and now he's further creeped out. Yeah. So he continues to walk around and take pictures and he sees a blind man sitting alone in a chair. I could, I, I could put. Rat poison in the in the guacamole. <laughs> my stapler. You took my stapler. <laughs> I forget the guy's name, but I love him. His name's Stephen Root. Okay. And he's fucking hilarious. And he's been in so many things. Yeah. I mean, obviously the office space joke we just made. I always remember him from True Blood, that one season where he's, uh, he's the gay vampire, right? And I don't remember exactly what happens to him, but it's fucked up. I remember that on True Blood. <laughs> but we find out that this blind man is a guy named Jim Hudson. And he's a famous art dealer, and he's a huge fan of Chris's work. Like, he knew who he was, knew of his work. And he says he, he was not always blind, and that was a genetic disease. And he says something about, like, I catch the irony that I'm a blind art dealer, yeah. right? And uh, They take it away from you before you can bash the movie over the head about it. Right, right. He says to Chris that he, he knows he's got a great eye for photos. This is super relevant later. I'm still not yeah. catching on to shit when I'm watching the movie, right? Neither was I. <laughs> But this is the first time you see Chris in a comfortable situation yeah. and conversation because they're just talking about art and, and this and that. And, and he knows who this guy is and he admires him and this guy admires him. So it's like finally a normal conversation. Yeah. Which is really ironic when you get to the end of the movie. But Chris heads back to the house after the conversation and there are lots of people just like loudly chatting in the living room and the entryway and everything. And he heads up the stairs and this is one of the creepiest scenes of the movie to me. As soon as he goes upstairs, Everyone instantly stops talking. There's not a sound in the room and they all just look up. And I'm like, what the fuck is happening? They're all brainwashed Stepford wives. Uh-huh. Is immediately what I thought. I was so fucking wrong. <laughs> <laughs> like, it hurts me that I was that wrong watching this movie the whole time. Because I'm like, are they robots? Are they, I know. Are they holograms? What the fuck's know, going on? Right? <laughs> I'm glad I wasn't the only one. Email us and let us know if you thought this too. Because I'm just curious if we're just like the two guys that thought that. <laughs> But he goes up to his room and he finds his phone's unplugged again, but this time it's dead. He thinks Georgina did it, and he thinks she did it on purpose. He tells Rose, because she comes in the room, and she starts teasing him, like, oh, yeah, yeah, she doesn't want you to call out. And he just plugs his phone back in, right? He wanted to talk to Rod, because what do you do when you fill out a place? You want to talk to your best friend. Yeah. That's why I call somebody other than you. Yeah. Wait, what? (laughs) I'm just kidding. I love you. But Chris is just letting Rod know how weird everything and everyone is and how they're treating him and how they're acting around him. And he lets Rod know that Rose's mom hypnotized him. And Rod says they could have had his ass running around barking like a dog and shit. And you don't know what other kind of fucked up shit they made you do while you're hypnotized. I don't know if you know this. White people love making people sex slaves and shit. His lines, his delivery, all of it is fantastic. You want to know the best part? What's the best part? He improved almost all of his comedy lines. Oh, really? Yes. He is a comedian, I think, so that's fucking fantastic. But this movie, like, most of the jokes come from him. Yeah. And they're not out of place because he's so far removed from the main part of the story that it's just like he just kind of comes in for a phone conversation or you see him, like, talking to the police later in the movie, and he's just cracking jokes, but apparently that wasn't even Jordan Beale. 
He's, Jordan Peele's a comedy master. He wasn't even writing most of that shit, apparently. He's the tension breaker. And this is what I talked about when we early talked about comedy horror. There's a difference between a comedy with horror elements and a horror movie that knows how to use comedy. Kind of like Scream, where it gets you to where, oh, the tension's broke. I can let my guard down now. I, I, I can shake off all the plot devices that just got me freaked out. And you're like, oh, yeah, I'm having a good time. And then if you go back into the whirlwind of all the crazy shit happening. It's like, oh, yeah. Oh, fuck. <laughs> And it's crazy because the non-comedy horror movies that have these comedy sprinklings usually have funnier jokes than the comedy movies. Yeah. But no matter how funny we think Rod is, Chris says that he does not think that Rose's family is into the kinky sex stuff. And Rod lets him know how Jeffrey Dahmer used to eat people's heads after he fucked their heads and they didn't see that shit coming. And then he goes on this fucking hilarious rant. And as a true crime person, I love this part of the movie. Rod's theory is that Rose's mom is hypnotizing the black people and then fucking the shit out of them. And that's why they're all acting so weird. Really in the theater, I'm like, yes, they're brainwashing him. He's onto this. It's a Stepford wife thing. Rod's cracked everything. I was still wrong. (laughs) But Georgina comes in to apologize for the whole phone thing. Yeah. But she doesn't just apologize for unhooking his phone. She's saying like mobile cellular device yeah like she doesn't know what the fuck it is which honestly even under the context of knowing what's happening she still should know what a fucking cell phone is right this part's bullshit fuck you jordan (laughs) it was still just trying to tell us that she wasn't her there's a key line she says in here and you might not catch it until like a second watch but she lets chris know that he shouldn't worry about her and walter because they're treated so much like they're part of the family yeah but chris has to head back out to the party and he has to meet a lot more old, rich white people. And they start asking him about the African-American experience and how is it living it? Who the fuck asked that? I know, Anyways, right? Chris asked Logan, the man that he met earlier in the tweed suit, right? <laughs> which yeah. we, we recognized at the beginning, that maybe he should explain what living the African-American experience is. And Chris is doing this as a joke because the whitest black guy he's ever met in his life, right? Yep. He's and, whiter than white guys. And I think Chris is at his breaking point now, too, that he's about to go off. Yeah, he, he doesn't give a fuck at this point. Yeah. And Logan gives this long, drawn-out bullshit answer about, it's very respectable living the black experience. And Chris is, like, rolling his eyes, like, what the fuck? And he's trying to film him, probably to show Rod how ridiculous this guy is. Yeah. And he takes a picture. And he accidentally had his flash on, which we've all done before. And he's like, oh, shit. The flash goes off, and it dazes Logan and makes his nose start to bleed. And he starts yelling, get out, get the fuck out. And he charges Chris while he's yelling all this. And then he's restrained by Walter, I think, and the brother, Jeremy, I think. I think they come and restrain him. And uh, he gets pulled away. Well, we see Dean, the father, Bradley Whitford, talking to all the guests of the party and Rose and Chris. But he's doing it like uh, the chair of the board or the CEO of the company <laughs> when you have a faulty product, right? Yes. Like when you accidentally leaked he's information. control. Yeah. When, you, when, you, when you've accidentally leaked personal information or you burned some houses down. And he's just telling everyone that it was an epileptic seizure and it's nothing to be worried about and not related to anything else that happened other than the camera flash. Chris has to get the fuck out of here. Like Josh said, it's his breaking point. And he and Rose take a walk. And he says he's seen seizures before because his cousin had it. And that was not a fucking seizure. (laughs) Meanwhile, we cut back and forth between the walk and Dean leading an auction because we were told they were playing bingo. Yeah. And this part is so fucking eerie because there's no sound. When it cuts to them, he's holding his fingers up 
doing things and people are just holding up bingo cards and it's literally a silent auction because there's no fucking sound here yeah but see this is the part that i got a problem with why do you have a problem with it because as the shot because they do the reveal because he's holding up the numbers and if you're watching there it's a higher amount each time yeah and it's a real tight shot on bradley whitford right yeah but as they go out and show the picture behind him it's like to me at that point it's too on the nose on on the rewatch well hell on the first time because i'm like how far away did chris go he could come back at any minute and see the shit. Oh, yeah. But that's because, like, I don't know. So part of, if you don't know what scene Josh is talking about, it cuts back and forth between Chris and Rose and then Dean leading this auction. And the camera's really tight on Dean. But every time the camera comes back to Dean, it's further out. Yeah. I like how they did it. And eventually you see that he's standing in front of a giant portrait of Chris. So what they're auctioning off is Chris. But you're worried that Chris could pop up at any time. Yes. That's because Jordan Peele's fucking genius. And he wanted you to love Rose the whole time and never think that she could possibly be in on this. And Rose and Chris could show up at any moment. However, Rose was probably ready to fuck him up against a tree. <laughs> just, just to, to make it. Yeah, to keep away. That's her only job, right? <laughs> oh, is is the only gripe I have in the movie. So I have to gripe about it. Yeah. But does the, does your gripe get resolved when you find out that she's in on it? Spoilers, guys somewhat maybe maybe it's just too much like as the shot goes wider it's like that's a fucking human i think maybe you're being more analytical of the scene though because you were watching it for the podcast because if you think about it it's cut between chris and rose talking in the auction right yeah but what are chris and rose talking about he's talking about how he thinks her mom fucked him up and then he's leaving with or without her true so you got that little emotional conflict and then he breaks down and starts talking about how he was home watching tv as a latchkey kid when his mom was in the car wreck and he knew she should have been back and all he had to do was call the police and they might have found her body and could have saved her. But it's his fault that she's dead because he never called the police. Yeah. So you have this huge like emotional scene between this seems like a perfect couple, Chris and Rose breaking up and and somebody that blames themselves for the death of their mother while the auction's coming on. And I really I mean, maybe it didn't catch you on it, but to me, it's like it really like separates your thoughts on it. That's what I'm saying, man. I think it was all too much for me. I just had a breakdown. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, at that point, though, you really know shit's up when you see the picture of Chris. Like, his body is what's up for auction. Did you have a flashback to the deer when he starts talking about that about his mom? Because that was supposed to be foreshadowing. Well, yeah, because he, he, cause he freezes. I don't even know if I went into the deer that much. Uh-uh. He had, I, we were joking about the fucking werewolf on the way to Florida. <laughs> um, when he hits the deer, or actually Rose hits the deer, but when they hit the deer, he walks into the woods and he just kind of like freezes like it's PTSD. Yeah. And it's because his mom was hitting a hit and run. Yep. And this deer was just hitting a hit and run. And it, it's everything's deep in a Jordan Peele movie. You got to yeah. just got to roll with it. Yeah. And this is, and you're getting all this at once. But the takeaway from their conversation here is that Chris says, I'd never leave without you, Rose. And she's yeah. like, if you want to get out of here, let's roll. So it's nighttime now. She stalled him properly. They could have fucked on the tree, like we were talking about earlier. But she walks him back to the house, and we can see all the rich white people leaving in their cars. But the strange thing here is that Rose's entire family is staring at Chris weirdly. And I'm talking Dean and Missy are, which they've yeah. been cool with them the whole time. And then Jeremy's looking at him with a crazy coked out stare. But that's just like his status quo. But the weird thing is he's standing on the porch playing a ukulele of all things. And it's so out of place. And whatever he's playing, I don't even know if it's an actual song. It's eerie, right? Because a ukulele, I would have never thought of making a creepy sound, but it can. Yeah. and. I- I ended up running across the thing where he said that he literally just gave him the ukulele and said, just play something in this scene. And he's just plucking and he plucks a 
weird, dissonant, creepy combination of notes. It's right. really the whole thing is it was already uncomfortable and now it's turned right. even worse. We went from daylight and you're the new love of the daughter. We all like you. We're nervous. We're talking funny. We're so nervous. And now it's like you're our prey. Welcome right. Home. Right. Because they're, they're looking at him like he's fucking food. Even the parents. But Chris and Rose just like charge past the family. It, it's almost like they didn't notice <laughs> the yeah. creepy food stare, which I think is kind of odd. But they go in the house and Rose is telling her parents that she wants to go while Chris is going to get his stuff. And he texts Rod and he sends a picture of Logan in his tweed suit because it's fucking ridiculous. And Rod immediately calls him. And he's like, you remember the dude Andre that went missing six months ago? And they realized that their friend Andre or acquaintance Andre had gone missing. And that's him in the suit. Yep. And he didn't talk or act that way. <laughs> and like you have like a serious aha moment here. And then Chris tells Rod that Logan was there with a much older white woman. And Rod immediately jumps back into the sex life. Yeah. <laughs> I told you. <laughs> but he tells Chris he needs to get the fuck out of there. So we got to get out again. And he's like, I think this is some eyes wide shut shit. <laughs> and then Chris's phone dies because it didn't get charged properly. Because Georgina accidentally unplugged it conveniently. Yeah. But Rose comes into the room and Chris is like, we need to go. We need to go now. And honestly, this is my favorite. Other than him breaking bad here in a little bit, this is my favorite Chris scene. Like his whole, where's the keys? Where's the keys? Oh, yeah. Like we're walking out. It's my favorite part of him in this movie. You see why I get nominated for awards for this shit. But but he's like, we got to go now. Grab your back. And she gets it. She's like ready to roll. And he's packing up a shit. And he sees the closet door slightly open, which he caught earlier, but he didn't care about. Yeah. And he goes inside and he finds a shoebox of pictures. And there's lots of pictures of Rose, like through high school and like prom and stuff. And he starts seeing pictures of Rose with different black men. Like she's dating them. She's kissing them, got their arm around them, which is strange because she told him that she had never dated a black guy before. And there's lots of black guys in these pictures. Yep. Shit's getting bad and it's getting creepy. But as he goes to the pictures, you see Logan in one of them, which is Andre. Yep. But as he gets to the bottom of the stack, the last two you see is Rose with the guy that we know as Walter, but he looks completely different. Like he's dressed completely different bandana on his head completely different demeanor than the guy we met and then you get the final one which is her kissing a girl which is georgina yep so we know that rose has dated several black people and brought them to the house at this point right and i'm still thinking brainwashing at this point can i tell you what i honestly thought at this point what the first time i saw the movie i was thinking she was dating black people and she would bring them to meet the family and then They'd go back to wherever the fuck they lived, and then they'd mysteriously dump her and end up missing. And she didn't know her family was kidnapping oh. her dates and, you know, brainwashing them and selling them off in some way. Because I'm still thinking like a Stepford Wives slash slavery thing at this point, right? So you're still thinking she wasn't in on it at this point. Exactly. Okay. And that was his goal. He cast her specifically because he wanted you to hook, line, and sink her think she was not in on it until the end. But they both tried to bail together because she's still with them, right? And as they go down the stairs, he gets off the stairwell first and Rose's family surrounds him and he's begging Rose for the keys. Like I was saying earlier, he's like, Rose, we need the keys. Rose, we need the keys. No keys. And she's just digging and she actually looks like she's frantic and she's like, where the fuck are the keys? Like somebody stole the keys out of her purse. Yeah. And they do a great job of making the family look extra creepy because Jeremy is creepy the whole time. Missy was creepy during the hypnotism scene. Dean was Bradley motherfucking Whitford other than the auction, right? Like he was like, <laughs> yeah, motherfucker would have voted for Obama a third term. 
And uh, they're super freaking you out. And Rose is just, she's freaking out, but in a different way. She's like, oh my God, I can't find the fucking keys. And then she completely flips and she just has this deadpan stare and pulls the keys out and shows that she had them the whole time. And then he's not leaving. Yeah. And that's when, isn't she like, she's like, now, honey, you know, I can't let you have these. Yeah. Like we just turn all bets are off now. But the voice, like she's a different person. Yeah. She changes. And he wanted her to be innocent the whole time. And he was actually worried if she could flip enough. Boy, was that understatement because she was <laughs> fucking crazy. And she's honestly a really creepy slasher from this point on. Yeah. Like everything she does is just so fucked up. They even like, it looks like she's not wearing as much makeup. They do her hair different. Like they just change her. Yeah. But we're diving into the third act here. And Chris realizes he's fucked and he's trying to run. And then Missy just taps the, the silver spoon. I forgot to bring that up. Oh, yeah. She uses a silver spoon on the teacups, like fed with the silver spoon, right? But she taps the teacup and he just drops straight into the sunken place. Yep. And Jeremy and Rose are carrying him away. And just like before, it's like an out of body experience. He can hear it. You were one of my favorites. But we don't know what Chris's fate is at this point. And we cut to Rod and we see him at work because he's a motherfucking TSA agent. And he's trying to get hold of Chris because he thinks something's up. Because I think Chris is probably supposed to be back at this point to see yes. Sid, the dog. And he's just getting his voicemail. So he gets off work, he heads to Chris's place and feeds Sid, and he starts doing some research, and he starts discovering that there are a lot of missing black men in the area that are just unsolved cases. We cut back to the Armitage house, and we see that Chris is waking up strapped to a fucking chair in, like, a room with some old-ass furniture, right? Yeah. Like, everything's dated, and there's a deer head mounted on the wall, and he's staring at it like, what the fuck, man? And he's trying to get out of the chair, and he can't. Then the world's scariest orientation video <laughs> pops up on this TV. This is so much worse than the Wendy's one. I know. And we see Rose's grandfather pop up, and he's letting the kidnappee know that they've been chosen for their physical advantages that they've gotten to enjoy their entire lifetime. And with their natural abilities and the Armitage family's determination, they could become something perfect. And this is when you're like, what the fuck is happening, right? If you haven't figured it out by now. Yeah. And we hear that his family has made a man-made miracle called the Coagula. And we find out that the Coagula Order, which is basically a cult, has been developing this process for years and that Rose's family has finally had a breakthrough in it. I guess through Dean being a neurosurgeon and Missy being a psychologist, they figured out a way to do this. And then we see a, a younger version of Rose's family because you can tell it's Dean and Missy younger yeah. with a little girl and a little boy walk up behind Grandpa. And it, we got grandma camera, in there too. Yeah, yeah. And grandma's in there and the camera pans out and it's in front of the Armitage house and it says, behold the coagula on the screen. And then it cuts to the, the teacup stirring with a silver spoon and Chris just passes right the fuck out. Like it instantly drops him at this point. Yep. We then cut to a piece of comic genius at this point where we see Rod at a police station telling a detective his theory. And she seems impressed that he's done all this legwork and figured a lot of this out. And he's explaining his whole sex slave theory. And she's like, hold on, hold on. I think you got something here. And she goes and gets two more detectives that are standing behind her. And she's like, tell them what you told me. And he's just serious. The heart that goes in, but now he's like improv and shit like that. Yeah. And they just bust out laughing when he's done. Right. So they think he's hilarious and they are not impressed with this TSA credentials. Oh, white girl. Oh, they get you every time. <laughs> so now that Rod's failed with the police, he heads back to the apartment to try to figure out what the fuck's going on. And he tries to call Chris again. But this time, Rose answers the phone. 
And she sounds really upset. And she says they got into a fight and that he left two days ago and forgot his phone. Have you not seen him yet? Jordan Peele is worried about this scene because he did not know if Allison could talk that innocent and look that fucking psychotic at the same time. <laughs> she did it because it's cutting back and forth. You can see Rod's side of the phone call and then hers. And she's just dressed in all white from this point on with her hair back in the ponytail. And she looks evil as shit. And she's like, oh, but Chris is missing. Thing of nightmares. Yes. But honestly, when you can just hear her voice from Rod's side of the phone, she honestly sounds worried, which we know she's not at this point. But it's just like when it flips, when it cuts to her and you see how crazy she is, she looks fucking evil. But Rod's on to her. Ooh, that TSA shit tingles. This motherfucker's lying. Yeah, he thinks he's clever. He does. He thinks he's so clever that he's going to record her and then trap her at this point. So he starts recording, goes back to her on the phone, and he starts probing her with questions. And she starts talking about how he shouldn't call her anymore like this and try to fuck her all the time. And it's not right because she's dating his friend. And she's on to him, right? Like, so, like, his recording's fucked. She knows he's recording, and she made it sound like he's jealous. Maybe he killed Chris. Like, she's completely fucked Rod at this point. He acknowledges her fucking mastermind skills at this point, because he's been outsmarted. He's been fucked. We cut back to the little basement room where Chris is strapped to the chair, and he wakes up again, and the TV turns back on, but this time he sees Jim Hudson, the blind man from before, obviously prepped for surgery in a room with his head shaved and he's talking to him via intercom. He lets Chris know that being caught by Rose was more pleasant than the way Jeremy usually catches people. (laughs) So he should be happy for that. And that's referencing, you know, Andre's just trying to go meet a Tinder date before he's strangled by night with a black plate. Yeah, He wasn't even getting any. No, he was not. Chris did have the more fun ride this way, but Jim explains the entire process of how they're going to put his consciousness into Chris's body And that a part of Chris is going to live in the mind the whole time and always be there stuck in the sunken place, aware of everything that's happening with no control over his body and that Jim will become him. And uh, Jim lets him know this understanding of knowing what's going to happen before it happens is supposed to help the bonding experience. This is fucking terrifying. Yes. I'd rather Freddy Krueger kill me in my sleep (laughs) than be stuck riding in my body as a passenger that can't do anything. But it does give us our explanation of the brainstem being left behind. And that's what was happening when the flash occurred. And it triggered it. Yeah. And a freedom. So we, now we know how all that works. Yeah. But Chris wants to know why black people and Jim says sometimes it's for their physical capabilities. Sometimes it's because they think it's cool. Yep. But Jim lets him know that in his particular situation, he could give a shit about his race. He just wants his fucking eye for photography, man. And Chris tries to get out of his straps again. I think the TV cuts off at this point, right? And as he's trying to rip the straps, all he manages to do is tear the leather on the arms and pull some cotton out by accident. But after he realizes that escape is pointless, the TV comes back on immediately into the teacup stirring and he passes the fuck out again. So afraid of tea now. I don't actually drink tea out of cups unless it's imaginary with my four-year-old daughter. (laughs) So we're okay. I just drink diabetes-inducing sweet tea. And like a 12 ounce glass. <laughs> okay. But we cut to an operating room where Dean and Jeremy start removing Jim's brain. And Dean sends Jeremy out to go get Chris and wheel him in, right? And as Jeremy's bringing Chris to the operating room, we realize that Chris was faking the whole time because he had tore the cotton and stuffed it in his ears like earplugs, right? Because uh, I guess it's not visual in the teacup. It's the clanking of the spoon on the side. And... I don't know how he would have figured that out precisely, but I would have been willing to try anything. Like, is it visual or audio? It worked. Yeah. 
but Chris breaks loose. I don't remember why Jeremy's not looking, but he's able to grab like a croquet ball while Jeremy's not paying attention to him and just fucking bash him in the back of the head with it a couple of times. Right. And he's bleeding, knocked out, left for dead, whatever. Should have kept hitting him. That's always the solution to <laughs> horror movie. Dean realizes that Jeremy's not come back yet and he goes out to look for him and he's looking around the hallway and he's confused. And then he's ambushed by Chris who charges and impales him with the mounted deer head from the room, right? Yeah. Catch him completely off guard and he falls and knocks over. I don't know why there are candles lit, but basically catches the operating room on fire. I do want to point out earlier in the movie when they show up at the house, they say they hit a deer on the way. And Dean's like, hell yeah, more power to you. There's a, there's a over infestation of oh, them. Yeah. Right. Like I say, we should take out all the deer. And then he dies by deer. So it's kind of ironic. Yeah. So Chris is mostly home free at this point, right? He's taking out Dean and Jeremy. So he runs up the stairs and he finds Georgina in the kitchen. And she's like, oh fuck. And she takes off running and he sees his phone on the table. So he grabs it and he tries to run through the house to get out, but he finds Missy. And she's staring at him, and he sees that the it's like a, the loaded gun sitting in the room, right? Her teacup sitting on a table yeah. halfway in between them. And they both run for it, and he swats it and smashes it before she can get to it. So then she tries to stab him with the letter opener, and she goes for his face, and he just straight up fucking blocks it with his hand. Straight out the other side. Yep. He doesn't give a shit. He's surviving, right? He's his, got so much adrenaline going at this point. And the face that he makes when he takes that knife to the hand, he's like, mm. Like, you, you feel it. Like... But, and this too shall pass. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then he, <laughs> it's even more badass because he forces his hand back around and basically they, there's some off screen damage to the Armitage family in here. Yeah. But you can see that he takes his hand with the pointy end of the letter openers aimed at Missy's eye and he starts to swing and the camera cuts and you can hear it. So he's fucking killed her via ocular cavity in the brain <laughs> with a letter opener that's stuck in his own fucking hand at this point. So it's so badass. Chris tries to leave. He goes to open the door. And he's jumped by Jeremy who kicks the door shut. And I really like this fight because Chris is getting choked out by Jeremy, which we know that's his move. We saw it in the beginning of the movie and Chris will go and try to open the door, but his hands covered in blood. So it's slippery and he'll barely get it open. And then Jeremy just fucking kicks the door shut. Right. Earlier in the movie, when he asked him about MMA, he said he took judo as a kid and judo is supposed to be more like chess. Right. You think I took judo a little bit, right? Gotta be so you're three to think moves about your moves. Yeah. You gotta be so many moves in. I think he specifically says that, right? Yep. Well, he starts to get really lightheaded. Chris does, and he's about to pass out. And then he reaches for the door one more time. And then Jeremy goes to kick the door shut, but Chris pulls. Actually, I don't know where the fucking scissors came from, to be honest. Is it scissors or is it still the letter opener? I couldn't figure this out. So I always assumed it was the letter opener, but he has a pair of scissors in the sand. They're surgical scissors, maybe. Jeremy had him on a belt or something. I don't know. But he fucking okay. stabs Jeremy in the leg with something, dropping him. And then the camera cuts to Chris's face as he very angrily curb stomps the fucking shit out of Jeremy. <laughs> he ain't coming back. Yeah. He's dead. We took care of it this time. It's really cool, though. It's like a really well shot scene. Basically, he was a fucking beast. He's going to make it out of here. But now we get the scariest scene in the entire fucking movie. As we see Rose is listening to the time of my life. Well, eating Fruit Loops, one nibble at a time, and then drinking milk through a straw. This way, you know she's a serial killer. <laughs> she's a damn serial wounder. It's truly fucking terrifying. Like the it, mixture it of the, the music and the way she's eating and the way she's dressed. It's very uncomfortable. And I'm joking, 
but the scene actually is fucked up because not only is that happening, but she's Google searching. Oh, no, no. It's even scarier. She's using Bing. Who the fuck uses Bing? Blumhouse. They couldn't afford Apple and they couldn't afford Google. So they're using Microsoft Surface tablets and Bing. <laughs> they're probably sponsored. But she's searching the web for top NCAA prospects. But as many jokes I'm making here, something they don't make completely obvious is the, the framing pans out. And if you look behind her on the wall, all the pictures that were in the shoebox of her with the different, I say men, but you also had Georgina in there, yeah. are all hanging on the wall, framed perfectly, which means she took the time to take them out of the box and frame them. Yeah, they're like fucking trophies. I do want to say, though, as she's hunting for her next victim in that scene, if you look at the Bing search of the NCAA prospects and their prospects, that way they're not going to, people aren't going to realize they're missing yet. Yeah. They're not famous college basketball players, but their bodies are in shape enough to do it. If you pay close attention, one of the basketball players is a picture of Keegan Michael Key. So he snuck him in the movie somehow. <laughs> but Chris gets out of the house and he takes Jeremy's car, which is the white car from the beginning, and the plate mail black helmet is sitting in the passenger seat and he sees it and he, and he dunks it in the floorboard, right? And he drives off and he's calling 911 and he barely gets his location out as he accidentally runs over Georgina. Rose hears this inside over time of my life because she's rocking that fucking Dirty Dancing yeah. soundtrack. And Chris is home free. He can just drive off now. But he's looking at Georgina's body where he just hit her left in the road, thinking about his mom being hit with a hit and run and left her dead. So what does he do? He drives off like a smart guy. No. No. He goes <laughs> and gets Georgina and puts her in the car, which I don't know what he's thinking about doing the fucking brain replace shit. But uh, I don't want to get into the science because I don't know it. But uh, <laughs> I don't I don't know that he's put two and two together yet. I mean, it was kind of explained to him by Jim, though. I agree. But in the moment, he might not realize it's grandma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he grabs her, loads her in the car, and he's driving off. But as he's speeding off, Rose runs out with a fucking rifle and shoots at the car, right? And she hits the windshield but doesn't hit Chris. And as he's driving off, she's like, grandmother or grandma or something. So that's... You yeah. as an audience member definitely know because you knew she had been affected in some way, but maybe not that she was grandma yet. Yeah. But Georgina wakes up in the car at this point and attacks Chris, causing him to crash. Chris wakes up because he got knocked unconscious by Rose shooting at him. And she like knocked the mirror off, right? Like it wasn't a direct hit on him or anything. And he gets out of the car and he makes a run for it. Well, you hear, I love the way she does this. She's holding the gun and looking <laughs> down the sights and you just hear her go, grandpa. And as she does that, you see Walter come fucking running full speed out of frame. And he chases down Chris because Chris is like wounded and limping at this point. And he tackles him. Well, he's trying to strangle Chris to death, but Chris manages to pull his cell phone out of his pocket and do the flash on the camera on Walter. And Walter's stunned. And then to us, he's stunned. And to Chris, he's stunned. Yeah. But all Rose can see is he just turns around and says, Rose, give me the gun. I'm going to finish this. Right? And she hands over the gun and he fucking shoots her in the stomach and then blows his own fucking brains out. Yep. Because he knows it's going to swap back over oh, to yeah. Grandpa here in a second. He got out. So you think Chris is safe at this point, but Rose, just like any good slasher, is not actually dead and gets back up. I wish it was for one last scare, but she's merely human, so she's just reaching for the gun as she's dying. Yeah. Uh, but Chris takes the gun from her first, and then she starts trying to act remorseful, and she's like, I'm so sorry, Chris, that my family tried to do this to you, and I love you, and this and that. And he just nods to her like, yeah, yeah. And then he starts to fucking strangle her to death. Yes. And he's super, I mean, this is what needs to happen in every slasher movie. Just killed the motherfucker. But he's strangling the shit out of her. But as she's dying, she gives him this creepy ass fucking evil smile that's even creepier than the Fruit Loop scene. Like she's enjoying it. Yeah. And then her body just goes limp. 
you start to hear a siren and you see flashing lights and then you realize that Rose isn't dead and she's just like, help. Like she's cried out for help. And then you see it's Rod from the motherfucking TSA and he's here to save the day. Yeah, because Chris is like standing up hands in the air like, I know this routine. There's a reason why. We'll get to that in a second. But Chris gets in the car without a word. He just doesn't say shit. He just sits down. Rod gets in the car and then Rod just looks at him and said, I told you not to go in that motherfucking house. (laughs) And then Chris wants to know how Rod found him. I'm T.S. motherfucking A. We handle shit. That's what we do. Consider this situation. Fucking handle. They drive off as Rose lays dying and the credits roll. So she becomes the, the wounded, dying, cold, and alone in the road. He left her for dead like his mom was left. Exactly. However, this was not Jordan Peele's original ending. This was a theatrical ending, but he completely shot a different ending. Okay. All right. And you can find it on the Blu-ray. It's also on YouTube, but it starts off pretty much the same way. Chris starts to strangle Rose and she gives the creepy smile and we hear the sirens and see the lights and he stands up and holds up his hand. Just like you said, on this time, it's not Rod of the motherfucking TSA. (laughs) It's the police. And Chris is arrested because I mean, it's a whole family murdered and the house is on fire, right? Yeah. We cut to prison. It's supposed to be six months later. We see that Rod's visiting him and, you know, he's talking through the glass and calling him and he's in jail for murdering the entire Armitage family. And all the evidence was burned up in the fire. So there's nothing to exonerate him. And Chris just wants to know how his dog Sid's doing. And Rod lets him know that he's doing well. And he's like, if you could just remember some names, some of the people from the party. And he's like, I don't remember. I've told you. I've told you. I don't remember any of their names because he just doesn't care at this point. Yeah. And he's like, it's all good. Don't worry about it, Rod. I'm in a good place. I stopped all of it. It can't happen to anybody else again. And then he hangs up the phone and just gets up and walks back to a cell. Hmm. But Jordan Peele says he wrote this movie during the Obama era and that there was still racism simmering under the surface. And the ending was a gut punch that the world needed to ring something true to everyone's core at that point. Right? Yeah. And that ending is actually what attracted Daniel Kaluuya to the movie. Like he took the job because he saw the ending. Oh, no shit. And that's not the ending you got in the theater, which kind of sucks for him. But Jordan Peele said that he wanted Chris's character to know that he lost because this was like some Illuminati shit that he couldn't beat. It was bigger than him. But at the end of the day, he was the martyr that beat his dragon or his demon or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. By going back for Georgina. And he stopped all this bad shit from happening to other innocent people. So he was the hero at the end of the day. And honestly, I think this is a more realistic ending. If you think about this, that's what would have happened. The cops rolled up. He would have gone to fucking jail. I hate to say that. But that is what would have happened, especially since all the evidence is burned up to say otherwise, right? Yeah. And I will also say that I enjoyed the theatrical ending when I saw it in the theater because I felt like Chris needed a win. Uh, and he got to be the hero. I agree. And I'm the guy who usually doesn't like the happy ending. And I like the theatrical ending better than what you just described because it's not fair. The thing is, I like them both, but I like them in different ways because yeah. the original ending not only was it more realistic, which is fucking terrible to say, but that would have proved Jordan Peele's point. It would have been a gut punch yeah. that people needed. So I wish that part would have been out. And it was also darker. And we're talking about a horror movie here. We're not talking about an action movie where, you know, the the the, the hero walks out alive, you know. But at the same time, it would have been, that's what would have happened to be realistic. But at the same time, it would have just been more of the same old, same right. old. 
and that's really why I'm split on this. Like, I can't actually pick one ending over the other because I also wanted, like I said, I wanted Chris to have a win and be the hero. And you get to see Rod of the motherfucking TSA one more time, right? <laughs> I guess you got to see him in prison. You know what I mean? But I mean, that's it. That That's the story. There's a couple little factoids that I found. Jordan Pill had originally written an entire Knights Templar backstory for the Coagula Initiative. They were searching for the Holy Grail, eternal youth. Okay. So they're based off of the Knights Templar. And that's why Jeremy had a plate helmet because he's a Knights Templar. Okay. Um, he added the Coagula video last minute. Like they had finished shooting the movie and he, he did that whole thing. His original way he wrote it is he wanted Chris strapped to the chair, listening to James Taylor's You've Got a Friend on repeat over and over again. But he couldn't afford okay. to pay for the song. Oh. So he decided to shoot that scene and it was influenced by the Dharma Initiative videos from Lost, which is why it's shot that way. And Morpheus in the Matrix, where it's just like the old wood panel TV and the picture just pops up. Okay. So you can really see those influences. And like I said, it's really neat with him only being like three years older than us. Yeah. And growing up as a horror fan, like it's neat to see that he's in the same movies and TV shows. And he's like, oh, I got to throw this in there. Like I said, I didn't figure it out on first watch, which pissed me off going back and watching it on watch. I hadn't watched it since then. We bought it, but uh, I didn't watch it again until the podcast. And it was one of those that I like, I knew I already knew. And it was like, oh God, this is going to be like six cents. It's not going to be as entertaining. And it was like still an entertaining movie, even when you know the twist and right. still a slap in the face of like, you dumb son of a bitch. How did you not put these pieces together? It's one of those movies I saw it in theaters and really enjoyed it. But my wife didn't go because I have to like basically pre-screen the horror movies to make sure they're not like super gory yeah. or nightmare inducing for her. Right. And when I saw it, I was like, you got to see this movie. I bet it's going to win an Oscar. Right. Like I just <laughs> felt that. And so I did get to watch it again with her. And this is the one that I feel like I'm going to be able to keep watching over and over again. And it's not really going to get old. And like when you have somebody at the house, like I want to watch a movie. And it's like, have you seen Get Out? I could see this, you know, being one of them to oh, throw yeah. on the list there. And I mean, it's like I said, it's the whole package. The score was fucking awesome. Cinematography was awesome. It was a unique story. Like you kept thinking it was going to be a rinse and repeat to Stepford Wives, and it wasn't. Yeah. Like it was just like, you know, it tricked you. The the casting choices, like everybody. Oh, yeah, everybody's great. And honestly, most of the horror directors that we talk about, their first movie's not always a huge hit like this. Oh, yeah. A absolutely. I mean, you've got very rarely does it happen. I mean, the motherfuckers directed two movies and they're both awesome. I don't like people saying, oh, well, this is just a movie about race. Right. And it's the same thing with us. I don't like people saying this is just a movie about race and class. It definitely is a huge part of it. Though. Yes. So many people get stuck on the race part and that exactly. and not realize everything else. But he's jumping into much bigger themes and that in, in and of itself, I think, is social commentary on the social commentary. It's totally fascinating. So after the success of Get Out, of course, you know, he's being attacked with offers. And of course, you know, he could have done pretty much anything with how much money that movie made. And the next project he wanted to do, he wanted to do the same thing. Writer, director, my idea, my story, my vision. And that's what I want to put out. So in 2019, he does us. It stars Lupita Nyong'o as Adelaide and Red, Winston Duke as Gabe and Abraham, Shahadi Wright-Joseph as Zora and Umbre. And Evan Alex as Jason and Pluto. Now, we got more people in there, but this is our family. This is our main cast. So that's what I'm going to stick with. Talking about return on investment. So I think I mentioned earlier, Blumhouse couldn't afford 
to make this movie the way that he wanted it done. So it ended up being straight up universal with hiring Jason Blum as a producer. This $20 million movie, $255 million box office. More importantly, it made $71 million opening weekend, which is just insane. Yeah. Now, uh, I've talked about it on the podcast before. We tried to go see this, and we don't like being in the theater with a bunch of other people. And when we went to go see it, the place was packed, and it was like, no. Like, I don't even think we were even going to be able to sit next to each other. It was so packed. But uh, this film was, uh, the idea was mainly inspired by a childhood fear of doppelgangers. And uh, in interviews, Peel has said, you know, what's the creepiest thing that a doppelganger could do? Just stare at you and smile. Like, <laughs> think of how creepy that would be. And uh, a Twilight Zone episode from the first season called Mirror Image, which okay. is about a doppelganger. And that's the really interesting thing about it, looking at the behind the scenes, is they used every trick in the book for the doppelgangers. So we did stand-ins, we did reverse shots, we did the split-screen filming twice parent trap technique, and digital face replacement. Okay. Thank you, Jurassic Park. Um <laughs> So they did it all, which is really cool. They didn't just say, all right, let's go to a green screen. We're going to do mocap. Well, they didn't have enough money to do that, number one. It would have been like a $100 million movie. But still, it's really cool to see that. And uh, I hope to see if we get straight up slasher out of him that we see practical. Right, right. And actually, I didn't think about that, that for $20 million, like he really had to go like back to the basics for this, right? So, um, And we're not talking about... Like a dream sequence where somebody sees themselves for a minute. Like it's a whole movie of yeah. doppelgangers. And uh, we open up with a black screen with text that slowly appears that reads, there are thousands of miles of tunnels beneath the continental United States, abandoned subway systems, unused service routes, and deserted mine shafts. Many have no known purpose at all. Now, there's going to be several... From the wild conspiracy to crazy fan theories to what Jordan Peele has said himself about all the Easter eggs and all the things that tie together in this movie. So as I go through this, I'm going to stick with the ones that he directly referenced as our core for the movie. And we'll save some other shit for the end. I'm going to try to not use too many rabbit puns, but (laughs) the rabbit hole that you go down (laughs) for fan theories on Jordan Peele movies is fucking insane. Yeah. And in my research for movies, I've never seen anything that was so prevalent as this. That's why I want to go down this. And I'm going to have to give props to a YouTube channel where that does this entire breakdown when we get to it. I mean, you said YouTube. Jordan Peele had to do a video and put it on YouTube to tone down the fan theories, right? Yeah. Like to just confirm and deny him because the shit had got so crazy. Well, that- name another horror director that had to do that. You can't. None that I know of. Like, I've never seen anything picked apart like this without looking for it. You know what I mean? Like, okay, it's me. Nightmare on Elm Street. Why does Freddy Krueger have a green and red sweater? Well, Wes Craven fucking said those two particular shades are some of the hardest for the brain to process at the same time, which creates tension and you don't know why. Moving on. This movie goes into, these theories are like, no. Freddy Krueger has a green and red sweater because the moon landing was faked and blotted. It's just like, it goes <laughs> fucking insane. Like well beyond the shit where people pick apart Kubrick films, but that's going to tie in too. He is a big shining fan. Oh, I'm talking shining and fucking eyes wide shut. That was actually mentioned in get out and the new world order. So moving on, <laughs> we open with a commercial for hands across America. <laughs> And uh, we're seeing it on a TV, and the TV's got stands on either side straddled with some VHS tapes, most notably Chud, 
Goonies, The Man with Two Brains. I did not notice that, and that is a nice collection. <laughs> and there's three movies right there that sum up all the, the storytelling elements of the movie. This is another one that when you go back and rewatch, there's so much shit that jumps out and so much shit that I didn't realize till reading about it. So why Chud? Just because the underground tunnels? Well, Chud is about an underground dwelling experiment. Okay, okay, okay. That's what I was making sure. And then Goonies, we've got underground and class warfare, if you oh, think yeah. about it. Class warfare is actually pretty prevalent in Goonies. And then the man with two brains about duality of the two halves. And that's the biggest thing in here. There's so many conspiracy theories and shit and fan theories about this. Most of them all come back to duality. I want to know how long it takes Jordan Peele to write a movie to have these fucking Easter eggs in there. Like he has to like really sit there and just think about it. Or does he just do it that quick? I don't <laughs> is know. Is that talented? I will save my original thoughts for the end of okay. the first time I saw the movie and then kind of work it backwards from there. I'll try to not interrupt you too much, but most of my interruptions are going to be, why didn't I figure this out? Just like get out. So. <laughs> now in the reflection of the TV, you can just barely see this. In my opinion, I don't know how people caught this. I didn't. Um, you can see a little girl cutting paper with scissors too. So it's like all right here in the opening. I didn't catch that she was cutting paper with scissors. And wow, that's like a mind blow right there. <laughs> but I did see the little girl. I just automatically assumed it was Adelaide watching the TV commercial. Yeah. So we cut to the Santa Cruz boardwalk, 1986. Interesting time to be at the Santa Cruz boardwalk. Was this uh, the Lost Boys? It's yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and fucking vampires kidnapping everybody. Her dad's playing a carnival game and wins her something, says, what do you want? She goes, I want number 11. And number 11 is a Thriller t-shirt. Oh, it's so hardcore in here, man. Holy shit. So, yes, obviously I caught that she picked number 11 because it's on the second row and not a third row prize. And it was a Thriller shirt. But 11 is two ones. Yes. I didn't catch that. You just said it. <laughs> How many times am I going to do that? I don't know. This? You got to get creative as you go, though. And then her mom mentions that there's a movie being filmed over at the carousel. It's 86, Santa Cruz, it's Lost Boys. There's no getting around that. Oh, that would be an interesting Easter egg. He has to be a Lost Boys fan. Yes, absolutely. So they go walking along, and mom and dad, they're, they're your kind of dysfunctional, just from their, their talking back and forth, not going into details on it. Well, Pops is obviously drinking heavily. Yeah, because she's like giving him shit about, I can't drink a beer now? We've all heard this. Unless you're a recovering alcoholic, and then congratulations for you, and I wish you luck on your journey. Sorry, guys, I'm on a lot of medicine, really tired. <laughs> is this what I sounded like for the past four episodes? Maybe. As they're walking along, dad stops to play whack-a-mole and the guy that's at the whack-a-mole thing, the tender, whatever the fuck you call them people. Two tickets. Is it another dual thing? He's wearing a black flag shirt. Yes. The There's also a black flag shirt next to the thriller shirt. If you didn't catch that. Oh, there is? Yeah. Fuck. That's one that I missed then. Um, and the black flag shirt features a puppet that's red holding a knife. That's fucking awesome. I didn't catch that. I was just like, fuck yeah, black flag. Jordan Peele must have like punk in the ace. Dude, when <laughs> as I, far as I went. When I get to the end, I'm going to go crazy. So Addy wanders off because, I mean, if I was hammered and playing whack-a-mole, I'm going to be dead to the world, too. I'm just going to be like, die, moles. I mean, I like my beers, but I am super protective of the children. So I don't know if I would have let my kid wander off like that. And I don't have kids, so I, don't, I can't put that into perspective. Honestly, though, I wouldn't have been that hammered out in public while trying to take care of my child. So yeah, he's probably an alcoholic. But it is 86 and there are vampires on the loose. Mm, bigger problems to worry about. Yep. It's the only problem with Santa Carlos is the goddamn vampires. Murder capital of the world. So Addie wanders off 
And uh, as she's walking along, she sees this man holding, you know, like a hobo holding a sign that says Jeremiah 1111. Immediately Googled it. Yeah, we're, we're going to come back to that later. And she enters this Hall of Mirrors thing that's on the beach. So as she goes in, we get this owl jump scare, or this animatronic owl that jumps out of the wall. It did not jump scare me. I'm just saying it. It, it jump scared her. It wasn't the deer. That deer <laughs> fucked me up, man. Then <laughs> the power shuts off and she starts to whistle Itsy Bitsy Spider. Oh, there's two Itsy Bitsy Spiders in this then. It's a reoccurring theme. This movie's deep, guys. That and that some people just don't understand escalators. <laughs> we probably needed to be two more professional people to cover this movie than we are, but we're going to try our best. Yeah. And you're going to hear me say, we'll come back to that so many times. So I'm just going to stop. And he's probably not going to come back to a goddamn thing. So let's just face it. No, no, I actually, I got notes. I used a fucking notebook and shit. Oh, you wrote. I did. But she can hear this other whistling off in the distance. And she goes to seek it out and she sees another girl that we only see from behind, but that appears to look exactly like her because we're seeing Addie from behind at the same time. And the thing here is like, she keeps getting scared by her own reflection in the mirrors. Yes. And you think it's a reflection except for, hmm. Reflections don't work like Exactly. (laughs) So we cut to bunnies in cages. We get the opening credits and we get this creepy chanting song which I looked it up because I'm like, this has to be Latin or something. And we all draw a line in the sand with the fucking Latin. Exactly. Or Swahili, like get out. Oh, but uh, the chant actually has no real words. Who is the composer? Because the same composer for both these movies, Michael Abel. Okay. But he wanted, he just did vowels and syllables and just wanted it to be something that sounded wrong. It bothers me. And as we get into the movie, it, it all plays into it. And the shot's like widening out and it's just this wall of cages and bunnies. And then you start to see some desks and then it cuts away. So this cut is to present day and we see a family driving to a vacation destination. We quickly realize this is adult Addie and her husband, Gabe, and their two children, Zora and Jason. Jason's name, I think it has something to do with a horror character from the past. I'm not sure. (laughs) You mean one that Jordan Peele's not afraid of? Maybe. Like to the point that he would belittle him to the point of being a small child that wears a Chewbacca mask. I didn't even think about that. But Chewbacca's a badass. It's a knockoff Chewbacca mask, though. He'll rip your arms out of your, your sockets if you beat him at hollow chest. Uh-huh. So as the family sits down for lunch, you can see that they've gotten Captain D's. No, it's Copper Pot's Cove is the, the fast food joint, the, the food that they're eating. I did not even catch what they were eating. Um, Another thing you'll see is Zora is wearing a shirt with a white rabbit on it. Wait a minute. So Copper Pot, so it's like a Goonie thing? Yeah. Okay, okay. I was trying to see where you're going with that. Okay, okay. Um, He is one of us. He is. Did he grow up down the street from one of us? or No. Oh. But um, Jason's trying to do this trick. It's his little magic trick thing that he said he left at the vacation house the year before. And uh, he's trying to show him how it works, and he fails. This thing's kind of bullshit. Hey, we were cursing at the table now? When you point a finger at someone else, you have three pointing back at you. So Addie has a flashback to after the event, the encounter with the girl. And we're seeing her after at a therapist's office. And her parents are in the other room and she's playing with these toys. Well, if you look, what she's doing, she's doing paws across the sandbox. She's got all these little animals lined up going all the way across the sandbox. And the last one she puts in the blank spot is a white rabbit. 
I did not catch that. I did catch that she's mute now. Yes. The parents are telling the therapist that she won't talk and they just want her to talk again. And the therapist suggested they should have her write, draw, anything creative to give her an outlet to tell her story. Second watch, just bashing you over the head with this shit. First watch, didn't get it at all. So back in the present day, Gabe says that he wants to take the family to the beach. And Addie's like, no, no, that's cool that we got sand right here. There's a lake. And he's like, that's not a lake. That's a shore. What does he, <laughs> he call it? It wasn't so much that they were going to a beach. She said, what beach? And when yeah. he says Santa Cruz, she's like, mm-mm. Well, I mean, they're at their vacation home and they're going to drive to the beach. She already knows. She's got to know they're that close. She's not really into it. She goes walking off into another room and she starts going through some old things. And she's looking for Jason because Jason's been messing with Zora. It's all kind of implied. You figure it out as it rolls out and uh, she finds this old stuffed bunny in a box. There's so many bunnies in this movie. I know, I know. <laughs> and uh, while this is going on, Zora traps Jason in the hall closet because he had busted out of this cabinet in the bathroom and scared her. All the shit is set up for later. We call that foreshadowing in the biz. Foreshadowing. <laughs> so this is interrupted by a car horn honking, but it's not a car horn. It's the boat horn. Cause dad got a boat and he's trying to show it off to him. And it's like, well, it doesn't do this and it doesn't do that. And, uh, the motor goes out on it and he's beating on, he's like, they showed me how to take care of this. It's okay. And, uh, the important thing here though, is what it does do is it pulls to the left, it pulls to the left and, uh, and it's got a cassette player and all this <laughs> shit. Those kids haven't seen a cassette tape. <laughs> so, now we know he got a boat, but we immediately cut to them driving, presumably to the beach. And on the ride, they're all being quiet, and Zora just randomly speaks up. Did you know that there's fluoride in the water that the government uses to control our minds? I forgot. Nobody cares about the end of the world. So Gabe kicks on the radio, and it's this song, I Got Five, on it. <laughs> and I don't know the song, but I do know in interviews, Jordan Peele said, one, the song's dope as fuck. Two, it reminds me of the Nightmare on Elm Street theme. That's why it's in the movie. <laughs> and that's it. It has no like other the kids, meaning. The kids are like, what's that mean? He's like, don't worry about it. It's like, it's about drugs, isn't it? <laughs> um, but we do have an interaction where Addie is trying to get Jason to snap to the rhythm of the song. Even though she's not snapping to the rhythm of the song herself. She's offbeat. Can I, can I interject here? Yeah. So people use that regularly to say, oh, the ending, this makes sense because she's not really a person, but she was a, a ballerina. So she would have to have rhythm to dance, right? And that's the thing I don't understand because as a musician watching that scene and going back and rewatching it, it's if you're doing. She's snapping on the blanks. She's just doing the. She, she's like that one person at church that right. claps on the downbeat or it's one of those things that like she has good rhythm and she was having a very hard time doing it awkwardly. I don't, I didn't find it that I just sounded like it was on the downbeat instead it's, of being completely wrong. It's just the thing that people stick on so hard. And I honestly think that one's bullshit because yeah. if she was a dancer, she has to have rhythm. Yeah. And this is like the crux of the Jason argument that I totally disagree with. Fuck the Jason argument. Jason Voorhees is a bitch. Wait, no, you better hope Kane Hodder doesn't listen to us. I think I've regularly praised Kane Hodder on this podcast. I just think Jason Voorhees is a bitch. I just think it's funny that Jordan Peele also <laughs> thinks Jason Voorhees is a bitch. Yeah. Is it some, is it diehard Michael Myers fans just all think that Jason Voorhees is a bitch? Is that what it is? I don't know. Is what, what I find fascinating is nobody ever wants to say that about Freddie. Everybody likes Freddie. Yeah. 
So as they arrive at the beach, they see a dead guy on a stretcher being loaded into an ambulance. And you can see it's the same hobo from the beginning of the movie because he's still got a Jeremiah 11.11 sign. Wait a minute. I never realized it was the same hobo. Don't we see the hobo again in a few minutes? This is where it gets going back and forth. Okay. So on the beach, they meet up with some uppy, well-to-do, miserable white family. (laughs) I will say, though, that the wife is Elizabeth Moss, who's quite famous now from Mad Men and Handmaiden's Tale and fucking everything else. (laughs) And they're good. She's Kitty and her husband, Josh. And they're very awkward twin daughters. And they have a drinking problem. Yeah, well, oh, yeah, they both do. It's made clear with her on the beach in later. And uh, Josh is wearing a shirt that says fragile on it. We'll come back to that later. (laughs) (laughs) And there's a lot to take away from here because Josh's family is more well off than Gabe's family. And I really feel like it's trying to show the whole money can't buy happiness thing. Absolutely. Because they're very fucking depressed while bragging about everything they have. And Gabe's trying to like, well, I got this. That's like under it, like in a way, right? Like he's just trying to compete. And he's trying to be this family, but obviously his family is more happy than Josh's. Yeah. And I feel like that was really struck home right there. Because he's like, I finally got a boat. And Josh is like, well, did you get life jackets? Yeah. Did you get something else? Yeah. Did you get a flare gun? Well, no. Yeah, I knew you'd forget the fucking flare gun. Right. He's an asshole about it. But uh, as uh, Kitty's talking to Addie, she ends up telling Addie that she got some work done. And uh, then tells Addie that she doesn't need any work because she's a whore. And it's a really weird line. What? what? <laughs> yeah, because she says, you don't need any work done, whore. It's that playful girl talk. Well, I thought it was like she was jealous that she looks so much younger than her. Well, possibly that, too, because this is right after she's like, why didn't you keep dancing? And she's like, well, I peaked at 14. And uh, just some weird back and forth. But you're right. The big takeaway here is that money does not buy happiness. These people are obviously miserable and their kids are very weird. Oh, shit. I didn't have this in my notes, but this is while they're talking, this red Frisbee lands ah. in between them, covering up one of the blue polka dots on the towel, like red covering up blue or red, white, and blue. Josh is red in the so much more than I did. I caught the very obvious round Frisbee on round circle, right? And Josh's wife is like, oh, that's odd, right? Like she points it out, but I didn't catch red doing something or the red, white, and blue. How many times are you going to blow my mind through um, uh, the synopsis here? The truth is, I'll go into detail. I was not psyched about coming back to watch this movie. And so I really tore into this movie. And the more I tore into it, the more I appreciated it. So I watched it again after tearing into it. Which is so funny because this wasn't my movie. This was Josh's. So I watched Get Out, you know, and did my notes and did my thing. I'd already seen it a bunch. and. I liked us, but it, it wasn't get out to me, right? And I was like, okay, I'm going to watch it. We purposely don't take notes on each other's movies, yeah. right? Because I want him to blow my mind like he currently is. And I watched us, and we were randomly texting about something else. I was like, I just watched us. I'm about to watch it again. <laughs> and I literally <laughs> watched the movie, made a sandwich, and then sat down and watched it again, which is just a weird happenstance that I was able to do that because my wife and kids went out to see the Star Wars movies. They hadn't seen it yet. So it's just me and the baby. So I just grabbed the little baby and I'm like, hey, let's watch us. <laughs> but like, I don't normally watch your movies like twice in a row like that. Hell, yeah. I don't watch many things twice in a row like that. <laughs> and you're still blowing my mind. Yeah, this was, I was so ready to destroy this movie. I was actually worried that and, you would destroy it. And 
I was so fascinated once I dug into the movie and then watched it knowing to look for more things that I couldn't leave them out. Because right. I, I want everybody, anybody who's, oh yeah, that was an okay. Anybody who was like me right. who's listening to this, like, no, this is, this is so much more. And now you guys know why we have a seven hour episode over two movies. Yeah. Crazy. So during the conversation, the twins cartwheel into Jason's sand tunnel or whatever he's building. And they ask, you know, what was it? A castle? He goes, no, just a tunnel, which tries to be a linchpin of the Jason thing. And they go over and tell Zora that her brother's weird or ask her, why is your brother so weird? One of the twins is wearing another black flag shirt. There were a lot of black flag shirts in here. Like, is, have you seen anything that explained why? There is a theory on it, but I couldn't find anything where Peel directly said it. So I'm gotcha. saving it for the end. I mean, I noticed the Black Flag shirts, but because I grew up listening to Black Flag. Yeah. But I was just thinking somebody was a fan. And uh, I'm actually out of order. It's after the, the twins that the Frisbee thing happens. I will say that I know what the Jason theory is, and I'm sure we're going to get into it at the end. Yeah. I never really gave it any credence. No. And I still don't give it credence. But you're starting to say things where I can see why, why people went that route. Yeah. Cause like, I didn't really think about the tunnel thing and, 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 oh, your brother's weird and all that. So I don't know. It's definitely strange. And, you know, and, and he is awkward, you know, he's a little awkward. He's, he's a little antisocial. He's got his mask that's always on his head and he pulls down from time to time. But I just think he's just a weird antisocial kid. Or Jordan actually put him in here as a red herring or that. So, um. Uh, Jason, who's been in a Jaws shirt, by the way, talks about how he needs to pee. And of course, the twins, both in unison, are like, just pee in the ocean. Jinx, jinx. But he wanders off to the porter shitter. Because that's what you do when you're at the beach. You just go in the ocean and take a piss. The fish do it. What's wrong with me doing it while I'm there? I do it every time. So Addie then freaks out Jaws style because she can't find Jason. That actually is a nice little reference back to Jaws. I didn't really think about it. Yeah. Now, while this is going on, he's coming out of the porter shitter and finds this guy that you only see his back and he's just standing there with his arms out and he's got like this big trench coat on and his hands are bleeding. It's really fucking weird, but that's all we see of him for now. Foreshadowing. <laughs> and he goes walking back as Addie runs up and grabs him and is like, you know, holy shit, you're not supposed to run off like that. And Gabe's like, I think it's time for us to go. And so they leave. So they head back to the house. And of course, it's getting later now. And Addie's heading to bed while Gabe is watching, I think it's a basketball game. And you can hear as Addie walks by that the score is currently tied at 11 to 11. Oh, I didn't catch that either. And uh, she goes into Jason's room and she's trying to have like a, a debriefing on what happened at the beach today, like a parent would like, you know, and she's saying, you know, just stick with me and you'll always be safe. And Jason points over at the clock, which says 11, 11. I mean, this is right after the other one. I caught one. that one. I yeah. did catch that one. And it's starting to be this synchronicity thing that's happening. I really think that's may of all that was supposed to be happening with the Frisbee was Addie noticing this synchronicity right. thing. And uh, I kind of fucked up here when uh, Jason goes walking off to the Porter Shitters. The Porter Shitters are right next to the Hall of Mirrors. Okay. That we saw from the beginning of the movie. I at least thought that he had wandered into the mirrors. Yeah. The first time I saw it, yeah. Yeah, when he comes out of the Porter Shitter, I'm like, oh, now he's going to go in. And he still doesn't go in. Which, it's really funny, because watching the movie the first time, I'm thinking Addie is afraid of the Santa Cruz beach because the fucked up shit she saw. Yeah. And then, when you see the end of the movie, she's afraid of it because she doesn't want revenge brought on her. Yep. 
So as Addie's leaving his room, she sees a drawing that he made of the man on the beach, but it's from the perspective of like a camera seeing Jason from behind and then further in front seeing the man on the beach from behind. And she asks Jason, you know, what is this? And he's like, uh, like total, <laughs> total kid response. So Addie goes to bed and while Gabe is trying his best to look sexy and get her in the mood. I have been that guy <laughs> so many times in my life. But while he's trying to look sexy on the bed, Addie goes ahead and tells Gabe why she's having such a hard time on the trip. Unbeknownst to us, she's never told anyone in the family her story because she goes into the story of being at the beach and running into the little girl. My whole life, I've she's still coming for me and that she looked exactly like her and gabe is like well it was a house of mirrors right like he's trying (laughs) to make light of the whole thing but it's deeper and darker than that to her so then the power goes out dun 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 (laughs) and jason is immediately standing in their doorway and he tells him what he's just seen there's a family in our driveway. Now, this was, according to Peel, this was supposed to instill the feeling of they're here from oh, Poltergeist. Oh, okay. I got like a stranger's vibe. Yes. I mean, it immediately went home invasion on me. Totally. And I know I said this earlier, but his previews are really good at letting you know what's going on without spoiling anything. Yeah. And I actually thought it was going to turn into a home invasion movie at some point. Yeah. The previews are really good at making you think Elizabeth Moss's character, Josh's wife, I can't think of her name right now, were just the bad guys from the the get-go. Yep. Like, the previews, it's like, she's going to come fucking murder them in a little bit. And I really love that, because trailers are so bad nowadays at spoiling shit. No, and I do got to say, that's both of these movies, I didn't read anything, nobody told me anything, I got to go into both of them blind, which was great. I mean, I watched trailers for both of them and saw them blind, I felt like. Yeah. So they look out front, and they see this family... That's they're in shadow because there's a street light behind them and they're all standing there holding hands, supposedly in the same pattern as the family sticker on the back of their car from earlier in the movie. It shows the sticker. I could see him doing that as an Easter egg. So Addie's smart and immediately starts calling the cops <laughs> while Gabe goes out to investigate. And he's like, no, no, I'm going to go see what's going on. At this point, when we see Zora, she's now wearing a shirt. This is Tho on it. Now it's T-H-O. Uh, don't I have no idea if I'm pronouncing it correctly. It's Vietnamese for rabbit. Okay. So she's changed shirts, but she's still wearing a rabbit shirt. But uh as God Gabe, damn Jordan Peel. <laughs> as Gabe goes outside, he tells that family to leave. But I'm just calling him the family, it's easier. But they don't respond. Gabe's like, all right. So he goes back inside and he gets a bat. <laughs> goes back outside. And uh I think this is where you got y'all won't get crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm going to start calling him by name. Abraham clicks and the family scatters and Abraham starts approaching Gabe and it's like, oh shit, what the fuck's going on? This ain't just some people trying to fuck with me. The bigger beard and the squinting without the glasses though was just enough for me to not immediately realize that it was Gabe. Like he looked just different enough, just barely. Dude, it not until after like scenes after they sit down in the living room did I realize it was all of them. Okay. Even when Zora says, says they're us or Jason says whatever it is, I'm like, not him. He looks too different. That girl <laughs> looks too different. That kid's got a mask on. It's the creepy smiling, though, is what it makes him look that different. Yeah. But to me, when, when Zora says they're us, that was the they're here for me. Like, I really felt that. Yeah. So Gabe runs back inside 
and they can hear the family surrounding the house. They find out that their hide a key isn't very hidden <laughs> because Abraham picks up this rock and you think the window's fixing to get bashed or something, but instead the door just slowly unlocks. <laughs> and I think, uh, I think Gabe even says, hide a key. How to keep white people bullshit? Because <laughs> I argue about the wife with that. She's like, I'm not going to go into detail about this, but like someone in her family is like, well, our emergency key is hidden like this, and she wants to do that. And I'm like, the fuck you do? And we're not hiding a key on our property. So Abraham ends up opening the door, and in the struggle with Gabe, gets the bat away from him and clocks him in the knee. The rest of the family makes their way into the house. Some of them coming through the door. Some of them busting through windows. They all end up having this face-to-face sit-down in the living room, and they can finally see who they're dealing with. It's us. Red starts to tell this story, and Red is talking, I should have noted this, it was based off of someone's condition to where they talk broken up and hard to talk, but this is how it comes out. And uh, I could live the rest of my life without you doing that again. (laughs) That was the thing of fucking nightmares. You just got a job as a voice actor for something satanic somewhere. Go me. So it's this very unsettling and awkward and on first watch. Why the fuck is she talking like this moment? I'd say so. I just watched you do it. (laughs) And she tells the story of a girl in her shadow and how they were tethered. And while the girl above got warm, nice food, the shadow only had cold, bloody rabbit. And while the girl had gifts that were fun and nice, the shadow got things that were cold and sharp and cut her. And when the girl met a prince, the shadow was forced to be with the man because she had no choice whether there was love or not. Was Harvey Weinstein the producer of this scenario? May have been. (laughs) And she goes on to say when she had her first child, she was a beautiful girl. But when the shadow had her first child, she was smiling, laughing, and crazy. And when she had her second child, the shadow had to cut that child out of her belly herself. And it's this really weird back and forth thing that's pretty much solidifying that as it happened to you, it happened to me. Right. Only while you got all the good. I got all the bad. And the second child that had to be cut out was a pyromaniac. <laughs> yeah, had a love for fire or something. <laughs> I don't know. It's something about the way she's using the word shadow to describe it made it extra disturbing to me. Yeah. But one day she realized that she was being tested by God. What are you people? We're Americans. But uh, Red tells Abby to tether herself to the table while Pluto, which is the Jason doppelganger brings her some handcuffs so red complies but uh abraham sees gabe push his glasses up and you see abraham do the same thing and he's like what's this <laughs> and he snatches gabe's glasses away from him and just grabs him by the shirt and starts dragging him out the front door i know it's fucking weird <laughs> but if you notice the whole time like abraham's squinting around like he can't see fucking shit yeah and it's because he needed glasses and somehow they knew how to make leather gloves and red jumpsuits and, and tethering handcuffs, but they didn't know about glasses yet. They didn't know about glasses. Well, see, all the things you named can be made from bunny parts, but glasses cannot be made from bunny parts. How about the scissors? Really sharp bones. But they're metal. No, I have no idea. Ooh, the bars and the bunny cages. There you go. 
Now I'm really reaching for it. All coming together, man. No. (laughs) So Red then tells Zora to run. And Umbre, which is Zora's doppelganger, which means shadow. Umbra is a shadow. Right. I knew that. And Umbre is, it's supposed to be a shadow within a shadow. It's something like that. I really should have wrote it down. So then Jason and Pluto go off to quote unquote play. (laughs) And Jason's smart though. He takes Pluto by the hand and takes him into the hall closet and he blocks the hall closet door with the little ambulance like he did earlier in the movie. And that was what got knocked out of the way by Zora trapping him in there. He knew the door would lock. So Pluto lights a match and Jason tries to do his trick. And they do this thing where they both move their hand at the same time and they do this mirroring thing. And this leads into Jason pulling up his Chewbacca mask which causes Pluto to pull up his burn mask. And Freddy fucking Krueger pops out of nowhere. At least from the nose down. So anyways, <laughs> we see Gabe get knocked out out front where uh, Abraham drug him out there. Oh, and he's crying like a bitch as he's getting his ass kicked too. Yeah. Well, he starts saying it earlier. He's like, I'll give you, give you my wallet. We can go to ATM. I'll give you the boat. <laughs> and one of the kids is like, nobody cares about the boat, so dad. <laughs> She's like, nobody wants that boat, dad. <laughs> but he's still saying the same stuff. He's like, what do you want? I don't know. I mean, this movie doesn't have Rod, but like he sprinkled jokes in anywhere yeah. he could. Because he's, he's bumbling. I mean, he really is. He's the dad and he's supposed to be the leader of the family. And he's just like, hey, look at me. I got a boat. And like, we even get to a part later on in the movie where, uh, I almost said red, where Addie's like, because we do what I say now. Right. <laughs> and I don't know. I mean, he acts like a, a dad that's like, I don't know what the fuck to do. I'm just trying to save everybody. Yeah. We see Zora tear ass down the street running. Run, rabbit, run. <laughs> See? And uh, Umbre's like, yeah, I'm going to stretch a little. I'm going to do a little of this. Like, she knows she's faster than her. Because we don't know what she's done. Dad had said to Zora earlier, you should try running on sand. It's more difficult. And that way, when you're on solid ground, you'll be even faster. But we find out, you know, the whole idea here is that the tether don't have the same chances and the opportunities. So whatever they've done to train has definitely been harder. Right. So Umbre is going to catch her ass, which she does. And she ends up on top of this car that Zora's hiding behind. And the neighbor dude comes out. And he's like, what are you doing? Get the fuck off my car. But Zora goes tearing ass off and Umbre just jumps down and starts slicing dude. We just see it off in the distance. Honestly, that's the first what the fuck dark scene. I mean, when you see the doppelgangers, it's disturbing. But this is like the first horrific. Someone just got fucking murdered scene yeah. in the movie. Because it's to me, the on first watch, which I didn't, don't want to go here yet. So I'm just going to say this. The scissors seem dumb. The jumpsuits, the scissors, the glove. But we're going to get to all that. I hope so, because I still don't completely get that aspect of the movie. But I want to say that the tone of the car scene right here and the tone of Josh's family's house later are the same and my two favorite parts of the movie. Yeah. So we cut back to what's going on between Red and Addie and Red is crushing Addie's head into the coffee table and is telling her that they've been waiting for this day for so long. I call it the untethering. So we then see that Abraham has Gabe wrapped up in garbage bags and on the boat. And this is one of those times where it's, there's so much jumping back and forth between this first encounter. And then we're going to go right into another encounter. That's almost as bad, but it's not jarring though. It's so no. weird how well it's done. Yeah. It's, it's weird trying to describe it than watching it. Watch it. This happens so fast. 
And I really like how Gabe's like doing the like poke your fingers out through the hole. Where yes. the fuck am I at? <laughs> yes, he actually does that so he can see what's going on. And the boat being the clunker that it is, the motor stops. And Gabe can see through his peephole that the bat is laying up in the front of the boat as Abraham goes to the back of the boat to beat on the motor quite aggressively. But Abraham uses this as his opportunity to get the bat and smack Abraham with it. Just as the motor starts, right? Abraham's foot gets tangled up in a rope, falls in the water. The rope gets hung up on the boat. And because the boat takes off, Gabe falls in too. Right. Anyways, it's just a lot going on in that scene. Back to the closet, because that's where Jason <laughs> and Pluto are. Jason's little trick, which is a little spark. It's a little magnesium spark wheel type thing. Finally works. It's supposed to be like a ring, right? Like, like you make fire from a ring. Maybe. Yeah. And, uh, but it finally works. And Pluto's like, ah, and that gives Jason just enough of an opportunity to bolt out the door and lock Pluto in the closet. This, of course, distracts Red from down the hall because they all communicate through grunts, clicks, moans. And you can hear Pluto making cries and Addie even says, that's one of yours or that's yours or something like that. And uh, Red goes down the hall to get Pluto. And while this is going on. Addie grabs the fire poker and uses it to break the coffee table to free herself. But we do have another interesting shot that while Red is going off to get Pluto, she finds the bunny in the box that Addie had earlier. And she takes her scissors and cuts the bunny's head off. Yep. Back to the boat. The boat hangs to the left. The boat hangs to the goddamn left. (laughs) This is what Gabe's saying as the boat comes back around to him and stalls out again. (laughs) So now the dads are right back together. If this was a perfectly working boat, he'd be fucking dead right now. But his clunker <laughs> saved his this life. This is true. So Abraham jumps out of the water, friggin' Friday the 13th style, <laughs> just as Gabe gets the motor to start, or the motor just starts. I'm not sure. It all happens really fast. <laughs> and uh, Abraham gets chopped to bits by the boat propeller. We see Addie and Jason escape, and they regroup with Zora, and they all take off on the boat to go across the lake. So now on to the Tylers where we're quickly going to have encounter number two. <laughs> oh my God. This is my favorite part of the movie. Hands down. So Kitty thinks she hears a noise and Josh is being a real asshole about investigating. He's like, I'm comfortable. And he's sitting there having I'm his in drink. my robe. So my wife, if she hears something, she hears it. She comes to me and she wants me to look. <laughs> and a lot of times I can't find shit or to raccoon or something. Right. Yeah. So I have regular, you know, I'm playing computer games or I'm playing an instrument and she's like, hey, we go check outside. I'm like, oh, I'm sure it's nothing. <laughs> I mean, I had a less douchebag O'Neill version in my own life, but I can't tell you how many times I've had my wife come in and said, I heard something. We check it out. And I'm like, but I'm doing this. <laughs> my outcomes were always better though. Oh, I would hope so. Yeah. yeah. I'm here. So. Yeah. I wouldn't have much of a podcast, but, uh, oh, the voice is starting to go. But as Josh is looking out through the window, he's like, I see something. I see something behind the car. It's, it's OJ. That's something I would have done too. (laughs) That's going to come back later though. The OJ thing? Yes. Is there a fucking white Ford Bronco? No, no. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, Josh tells Alexa, I mean, Ophelia. Oh, I love the fucking Ophelia joke. <laughs> to play the Beach Boys because he wants to hear good vibrations and get drunk. It's their last night in the house. Let's party. Sounds like a good time to me. So the Beach Boys kicks on and the argument has gotten the attention of the twins who 
look over from the balcony and it's like, just because we're in our rooms doesn't mean we're asleep or some shit like that. And this is a fucking upscale <laughs> nice house. It's like all glass on one side. And it just cuts to this. Well, it doesn't cut yet. You see one of the twins doppelgangers come up from behind her. And I think she slashes her throat and then pushes her off the balcony. And then it just cuts to this outside quiet shot. Because, you know, it's loud in there. The Beach Boys going. And you just see all of a sudden all their doppelgangers just pop up and slice all of them. It's so quick, so fast, so unexpected. I want him to do a fucking slasher movie. (laughs) Now, Kitty is still alive and she's crawling across the floor towards Josh. And doppelganger Josh steps in front of her, which is Tex. And he reaches down for her. And then he's like, oh, psych, rubs his slick back hair back. So it's like he's just as much of an asshole as Josh is. Maybe even more. And uh, she says something and Ophelia stops. So she tells Ophelia to call the police. Ophelia, call the police. Sure. Playing Fuck the Police by NWA. So now we have a new soundtrack to continue on this with the scene. I just want to say that my Google Home is as much of an asshole <laughs> as this Ophelia. This is one of the reasons I don't put this shit in my house. One, I don't have the internet for it. Two, I just don't trust them. Anyways, so the Wilsons arrive for help, and not Josh answers the door. <laughs> and is he related to not Neil? <laughs> There's a third layer of the conspiracy. <laughs> it all ties back to Corman. <laughs> She gets him in the head with a fire poker, and this is the part in the movie where it's like he feels no pain, in all seriousness. I don't know if that was something that was being toyed with, but it seems to not affect him at all. He's a nihilist. Hmm. So he has no dick? <laughs> yes, I forgot about that. <laughs> so the rest of the family like reaches out cartoon style from the door and grabs Addie and yanks her into the house while Josh makes his way down the steps towards the rest of the family. <laughs> I love this part because I never caught it till watching it with subtitles. And uh, so Gabe goes running off and you see the kids like kind of hide in the bushes, but you can hear Gabe going, come on, bad Josh. Come on, bad Josh. Yeah, I caught that when I saw it. You didn't catch that? No. <laughs> I mean, oh. really, Gabe is like a normal everyday dad. To yeah, me. <laughs> totally. So Zora and Jason go into the house and Zora gets a putter. Jason picks up this geode on a little stand. So they make their way upstairs and the first twin jumps out and Zora fucking knocks her. Yeah. She knocks the first one off the balcony with putter. Then she comes down this hall and the other twin comes out and she just straight up bashes the shit out of her down the hall and into the bathroom. And like, she's down on the floor and she's like fucking hitting her, stabbing her with the end of the putter. It's, it's insane. Zora's a badass. Zora's on fire. (laughs) So with both the twins take it out, Zora makes her way into the upstairs bedroom where we see that Dahlia. Dahlia is Kitty's doppelganger. How do you know the doppelganger's names? Were they said or is it just in the credits or something? IMDb. <laughs> Fuck you. Just call it like Kitty's clone. It, that gets hard because we haven't admitted that they're clones yet. And uh. then this family has twins. What? So I can't say the twin. You're right. So there's this really fucked up shot here that happens with Dahlia sitting there and she's like painting up her lips and shit. Oh, yeah. Like. I'm still pretty. <laughs> and she goes over to Addie, like with the scissors to her throat, like she's going to kill her, but then like something won't let her do it. And she goes back over to the vanity and she starts cutting her fucking face. I took it as like a plastic surgery thing. Like, Oh, I got a little work right here. Exactly. Meanwhile, 
Gabe has now led Josh, not Josh, bad Josh, Tex, <laughs> we'll just say bad Josh, out to his own damn boat, the uh, Biatch, like, like, <laughs> like a yacht. That's the name of the boat, okay, Biatch, okay. I think. And uh, <laughs> he tries to get him with the flare gun. <laughs> irony, <laughs> right? Taste irony, you bitch. He shoots him with the flare gun and it just kind of ricochets around. <laughs> Does nothing. And they start to fight. So Dahlia can hear all this commotion and starts watching through the window. And while this is going on, Zora tries to sneak up behind her, but it's a fucking window at night. <laughs> she can obviously see the reflection. She turns around, blocks the swing, and she pins her down on the bed. And she's about to get her with the fucking scissors. And Addie's like about to break her own arm trying to get up on top of the bed. But Jason comes in, saves the day by bashing her in the back of the head with a geode. Geodes can be dangerous. And pretty. Anything heavy could be dangerous. So the family regroups and they check the news because 911's down. Or they keep calling 911, they're just being put on hold. And on the news, we learn that the tethered are fucking everywhere. Right. And they're forming this odd human chain. They're seeing this on this news report. I'll tell you what's odd about this scene. The family's casually watching TV with a corpse. I know. On the fucking coffee table like it's not there. I know. It's so good. I saw something online there talking about how, like, the first act of the movie is just, like, the setup. And then the second act of the movie turns it into a comedy. And then the third act is when it, like, goes full fucking horror. Yeah. And it really does do that because there's so totally. many. I mean, we're about to get to a car scene that's got some jokes in it. And really, this middle part of the movie is just straight-up comedy the whole fucking time. Yep. Even with the blood and the murder, it's still funny. Yep. We're also fucked up, so things that are funny to us <laughs> aren't funny to normal people. That's why we're horror fans. So, Addie says that they should head to Mexico. You're scaring the kids. Too late. This is the plan from Planet Terror. You should not <laughs> always follow Robert Rodriguez <laughs> and Quentin Tarantino movies. While Gabe wants to do some Home Alone shit. Make some traps or something, like some Home Alone type stuff. That way if she comes... Tell me you did not just reference Home Alone. You know what I'm talking about. Gabe. They've been planning this. They have the upper hand. This is the time to run, not to be sprinkling micro-machines on the floor. What are micro-machines? What's Home Alone? The Home Alone joke really just seems like a joke we'd make on this podcast. And it just kind of goes again, like with the growing up, like same age as us roughly. Yes. And I mean, I don't know. It's like maybe some of the other directors that we covered, like Eli Roth's about our age, right? Yeah. And he doesn't do as many references as this. Maybe Jordan Peele's a latchkey kid like we were, well, right? Like, it's just like fucking his movie references match jokes that I poorly write into our podcast. Well, and that's what he's using to ground shit in reality, I too. Know. That's what makes it so much better. I mean, Micro Machines and Home Alone are regularly used to reference burglar defense, right? Yes, totally. So they go to take the Tyler's car and head presumably to Mexico, but they don't have the keys. So Addie goes back in for the keys and she notices that body that they were all hanging out around watching TV is now gone. Hanging out. Gabe used her forehead as a fucking coaster. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, she gets attacked by the twin and she ends up going just bonkers on her. Addie does on the twin and she's friggin slicing her, stabbing her, screams, grunts, moans during the kill. Jason's walking in and seeing the kill. So keys in hand back outside, they get into an argument over who gets to drive based on the kill count, (laughs) which earlier in the movie, 
Zora was like, teach me how to drive this weekend. They're like, fuck you, no. But now she's got the upper hand. Well, she does until because she's like, I killed this one, this one, this one. And it's like, no, you only killed one of the twins because I just killed the other one. And Gabe says, well, I killed this one. This one. <laughs> It becomes a conversation. It's so good. But as the headlights kick on, they spot Umbre. And Zora tries to run her down, but she jumps up on top of the car. And uh, she's like stabbing at the windshield with scissors and shit. And there is one more bit of comedy because she kicks on the fucking windshield. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's my normal defense when there's a creature attacking <laughs> me through the glass. <laughs> but she wises up and she guns it and then slams on the brakes, flinging Umbre off into the trees. Addie gets out and she goes down the hill over to Umbre's crumpled up body that's in the tree. And she's still just grinning like. <sighs> While folded like a pretzel. Yes. And Addie's like, shh, and kind of consoles her as she dies. I caught right here that she realized these were her people and she couldn't just fucking murder them. What, that she was the doppelganger? Yeah. So as they go to make their way out of town, it's like daylight now, next morning and shit. They come around a corner and they see that the road is blocked by their burning car. And Pluto pops up. Addie gets out of the car again and goes to confront Pluto. And he's just snapping. No music to go with it. Well, there's music, but it's not going with the snapping. And Pluto pulls up his mask to reveal his face. It's a trap! And uh, Jason then yells, get out. And they get out of the car. We see the trail of gasoline going up under the car. So standing out next to the car, Jason raises his arms. All Jesus-like and shit. Pluto raises his arms, too. This part bothers me. And Jason starts walking backwards. And Pluto just calmly starts walking backwards, straight into the burning car, being poofed. Addie's fucking freaking out about it. And then Red appears next to this SUV that Jason was walking back towards, snatches his ass and runs off. This is another, I love the cinematography scene because she, she's out of focus. The SUV's out of focus. Yeah. Jason's in focus and she's in red and the SUV is red or yes. orange or something. And she just kind of slowly stands up, turns around, and you can tell she's there, but the fact that it's out of focus just makes it fucking creepier. Was she planning on this? Dude, I I don't know on that. I've thought about it, but the how the out of focus thing works, I literally went, what the fuck? That bitch did not just appear out of thin air and had to rewind it and yeah. watch it again because it was such a trick of the eyes. This scene does bother me, though, and this is the only part of the movie that falls flat to me. I don't understand why Jason can fucking completely control his puppet or his clone or his shadow or his tether, whatever the fuck you want to call it, and nobody else can. Well, and that's the thing. On first watch, this was the part of the movie where I look at the wife and I'm like, why the fuck haven't they all been doing something like that? But the connection they had in the closet seems to show a tighter bond between the two. We did have Gabe and Abraham with the glasses and the movement. There's... It's almost like there's something that can be tuned into. And, you know, they talk about children and animals being able to sense spirits. Jason's character is a little odd. So maybe he has some idiot savant psychic powers that ties him closer to his tethered. I mean, I understand why Addie can't do it to Red. Yeah. If it works that way, right? But I don't know. So Addie ends up chasing Red and Jason to the House of Mirrors or Hall of Mirrors. I think I've said both. But as they go in, we can see the man that Jason ran into on the beach standing there, and he's now joined by other tethered, creating this human chain off into the ocean. And I'm pretty sure this is the shot where you see his face, and he's got 11-11 on his forehead. 
like, oh shit, he was the bum's doppelganger this whole time. And what you can see back when Jason first saw him is the trench coat stopped short of his pants and he has the fucking red capris and right. the sandals on. It's one of those things that even on the second watch, I'm like, I didn't fucking notice that shit even when I was looking for it. So once inside, Addie finds this hidden door. And the door takes her down a path of halls and stairs and mechanical rooms down to this long escalator that only goes down. It's not that hidden, though, because that's where the incident happened. Yeah. When she was a kid, right? It just seems to be a little bit brighter lit now, and she can tell that there's something behind where the incident happened. Like, she knew where to go because she's already been fucked here before or fucked someone else here before. So at the bottom of the escalator, she finds these like sterile halls and sterile rooms, but there's bunnies everywhere. And I forgot to say, when she opens the door, the hidden door, there's a painting and on the painting, there's a bunny. And when she opens the door, a real bunny comes out from the door in front of the painting of the bunny. There's another bunny bunny. There's bunnyception. (laughs) There are fucking bunnies everywhere for the rest of the movie. It's almost like they're fucking like jackrabbits. Hey, you're on to something there. <laughs> but she ends up in a room that she finds Red in. And Red's standing in front of a chalkboard that has stick figures all holding hands drawn all the way across it. She's got her face to the chalkboard and her back to Addie. Red then tells Addie the story of the tethered and that they were copies created to control the others up above like puppets. But the experiment failed and they all went mad. Now, she goes into more detail that it's her theory that they couldn't copy the soul and that they were linked by the soul. This is where the movie, as just a movie for entertainment, a lot of shit falls apart for me. So Red says that they were born special. And then there was us. And then we start to see flashbacks that are showing the, the tethered mirroring the actions of those above as she's telling the, retelling the story of that night. So Red says that years later, after their encounter, she saw God, and that after that, the tethered saw her differently. See, this is when shit, like, it's so abstract. Um, and this is when I make the Messiah joke, but Jordan Peele said that they, at this point, they saw her as their Messiah. Think of it that way. She could talk, right? Like, she can think independently, because she's not a tethered. She's an original. So she would be a god to them, because she's so much more evolved than they are, right? Yeah, but it still took 14 years before that turning point to occur. So she then became their leader, and she also became obsessed over this Hands Across America shirt because it was the only thing she knew from above that that she now has down there, and she obsesses over it. But for her grand plan, she needed to do more than kill Addie. She needed to make a statement that the whole world would see. And it's then that we see the tethered in the matching jumpsuits, the single gloves, the scissors. So there's another Goonies reference. It's our time now. Our time. And then the dance battle ensues. I don't like the dance battle. You liked it just fine in Slumber Party Massacre (laughs) 2. I accepted it in Slumber Party Massacre 2. You liked it just fine. I fucking loved it. But there's a huge tie in between. When Addie danced in her recital and what that did at the same time that was the rebirth of her tethered and that's what tied them together and that's part of what made that she wooed the others basically when she did her recital. Addie told Kitty that she peaked at 14. Exactly. Holy shit. 
So the dance fight thing ends with Addie stabbing Red with a fire poker. And it's this big, long dance between light and shadow and cut back and forth. It's really drawn out. I do like that it's like Red knows every move she's going to make. Yeah. And she's just basically walking and can matrix dodge any attack that Addie does. Yep. Without actually fighting or dodging. Yep. But she eventually thinks she has the drop on her and Addie spins around and stabs her right through the solar plexus with that damn fire poker. Improvised weapons. And uh, not being one to leave things half finished, she then takes her restraints that she still has stuck on her from earlier in the movie, chokes Red the fuck out, and still isn't done, and finally cracks her neck. This is so fucking visceral and dirty. And this is full-blown. Addie screams, grunts, clicks, and laughs. And then she hears a noise. And it's Jason hiding in a locker who once again has seen all this. They regroup at the ambulance that I left out that that's where Gabe and Zora are. Ambulance number 1111. Ooh. Yeah. They get in the ambulance and drive away. And they continue to see the tethered holding hands in different spots. Addie has one more flashback as she's driving the ambulance away. And we see that when she encountered the tethered, the tethered actually choked her out, dragged her underground, chained her to a bed, and was swapped out with her clone. And we see the clone in the backseat of the parent's car in the rain right after the event, just smiling. I will say that when, who we've been calling Addie the whole movie, who was actually red, gets her by the throat, you can hear like a popping sound, like she cracked her larynx or something. And that's why she talks like the fucked up voice that Josh did earlier. It's giving me nightmares. <laughs> yeah. Between that, not really needing to talk because nobody else down there talked. It's that that explains all that away. And uh, I felt better at that point on first watch. So Jason stares her down and gives her like slant eyes. Like what's going on? <laughs> she just stares him down. And she goes to look away and smirks. He pulls his mask down and they drive off. And we get an overhead shot that leaves from above the ambulance off into the wilderness while this terrible flower song plays. (laughs) And you see the tethered like over the hills and and through the snow, (laughs) like all making their line and like smoke and fires off the distance in these helicopters. Who's flying the helicopters? I guess people the tethered didn't get to right like so this family survived so why couldn't the cia survive or josh josh if, is apparently signaling that he survived no, no, no. if i had access to a helicopter and saw the shit on the news I'd be like as much fuel as we have get us in the air <laughs> my thoughts on the first viewing back when i first saw this i thought the movie the writing was as ambiguous as gavin rosdale lyrics <laughs> that there are all these tie-ins weren't meant to connect that it was just so big and broad that everybody would find their own meaning. And I really seriously thought that's what Peel was doing. Like he's a comedic genius. He's like, I just made the, one of the biggest movies ever. I have car blanche to do what I want. I'm going to do something so odd. And then I'm going to sit back and watch what people say about it for my own entertainment. But really it was deliberate the whole time. It seems like for a lot of it. After doing some reading and watching some interviews and rewatching it's, Totally different ball game, and I appreciate what was being done. I do think the movie suffers from the message becoming more important than the movie, which make, makes the movie feel clunky. The movie on its own 
still feels clunky. I still hate the explanation at the end. Was it the government? Who were the experiment people? Who was trying to control who? Did it have anything to do with the line about the fluoride and the conspiracies with that? There's too many unanswered questions just from an entertainment point of view. But I feel like you would have mudded up the plot a bit if you were trying to focus on was it the government, was it the Illuminati, was it the fucking Coagula initiative? Like, I don't know. I, I feel like that would have been an unnecessary extra explanation. Possibly. I took a handful of the favorite picked apart things that I found while looking at this, and I'm starting off number one with what Jordan Peele said about these specifically in interviews. I mean, let's do that because he fucking wrote and directed it because we could honestly do. I mean, I know we've already gone 14 hours. We could go another 12 just yeah. on theories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here we go. So the scissors, they were made symmetrical on purpose. They're okay. Two parts of a whole that are opposite yet tied together, which just represented duality and they looked really cool like a skull on the poster <laughs> hands across america was a total fucking failure yeah most of the money raised was used to recoup what was spent on the marketing because how much was raised do you remember i think I, 15 million actually went to feed the poor but it was out of the 30 something million yeah raised, it cost right? like 32 and they but they had to spend 17 of the 32 which is just insane and it was so poorly orchestrated that it didn't even happen. People, there were giant sections where people weren't holding hands. Right. And But you're right. It was about feeding the poor and the hungry in the U.S. and raising awareness for hunger in Africa. And it does point out that not only is there the have and the have-nots, when you attempt to do something good, it becomes a failure in its own right and all the money that was squandered in an attempt instead of going to said place, which class and right the duality of good and evil the have the have not as above so below all that kind of shit which makes me wonder were the goonies references just because it's a fucking awesome movie and he grew up watching it <laughs> or is it because of the rich trying to buy out the you know the poor people's neighborhood i think it's both i think the underground and the class separation in the movie are both why goonies was referenced now the boat the backup generator both of those are absolutely about class and race to a certain well, extent. Harvard versus Howard. Yeah. Things like that. Now, uh, us being a reference to U.S., absolutely. But Peel said it was more of, and given the time, of Americans in particular being so afraid of outsiders when they should be looking at the monster within. And people jumped right on the bandwagon of saying, yeah, Trump. Trump's a monster. We got to do something about him. He's like, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying us. It all starts with us. It's all about the individual. Right. And we allow things to happen. We allow politicians to get elected. We allow causes to go unnoticed. We get wrapped up in our own competition to keep up with the Joneses that we don't even look at the other half. Another big thing there is what happens with Reds, Addy, however you want to look at it. That was a tethered, given a chance in the real world, and had a successful life. And that was my counter argument for the soul. I feel like it was a nature versus nurture, right? And us above, we have everything. And even if you stick a tethered up there, she can blossom when she just like, given a chance. Yeah, given a chance, she can she can become one of us. Whereas you you took the normal person if we want to call it that i guess because it's not the clone right like the original and you stick her down there in the tunnels and she essentially devolved down into being one of the tethered but she also rose to power as the messiah of the tethered she remembered what she had though exactly so it's it does say a lot about privilege no matter what 
if you're if you have privilege and you take it, you can be successful. But don't think that just because you don't have privilege that if you can work into a situation, you can't get there, too. Um, The Thriller T-shirt was done on purpose because of the duality of Michael Jackson's character in the Thriller video, not the shit that was coming out about him around the time the movie was released. Um, I think I already mentioned that I got five on it. It, It's a dope song. It reminds me of Nightmare on Elm Street theme. That's it. Now, The Glove. Peel said The Glove represented three things. Freddy Krueger. Oh, Michael Jackson. Oh, and OJ Simpson. Oh, and it was just a familiar element that he wanted to do in costuming that once again went to characters that showed duality and the monster that could be within. It's really neat, but I somehow never noticed that it was a single glove. I just assumed they had two gloves. Well, it's always the hand holding the scissors is the gloved hand. Okay. So it's the monster. Jeremiah eleven eleven. the actual Bible verse says, therefore, this is what the Lord says. I will bring on them a disaster they cannot escape. It goes on a little bit farther from there, but it doesn't change or reiterate anything. I haven't found that directly explained by Peel. The conspiracy stuff into it is crazy from what it goes into. I'm not going to spend 20 minutes on this. I mean, it's, it, it is a story about not being able to avoid God's wrath. Right. So even though that exact verse does not specifically say revenge, that segment of the Bible is talking about revenge, which is what, I don't know if we call her Addy or Red at this point. That's what she was doing. She was bringing revenge for what was fucking done to her. Yeah. Now, just real quick, because I've never seen anything go as wild, crazy, as quick as I did on this. And I have been into conspiracy shit mainly since uh, 9-11. And the way I saw people diving into crazy shit on this, I never get an opportunity to go this direction because we're not that kind of <laughs> podcast. But just hear me out real quick. It gets absurd on these movies. A lot of this shit comes from, look up a YouTube channel. It's called Up TV. Okay. And the first one you're going to find everywhere is that's the family-friendly broadcasting. It's not that one. This is the one that's got a bunch of conspiracy videos on it. And this guy did a breakdown of this movie. He did a 20-minute video based just on the trailer. Okay. Like, put on your tinfoil hats real quick. So the original release date for this movie was 322, which 322 is the number of skull and bones. If you look, a lot of this shit, I'm not digging into it. Take too long. Just if you're curious and want to go look, it's fascinating. If you think I'm, re- I'm just dumb and wearing my tinfoil hat too tight, that's fine. But I think this is neat. But these aren't things that you necessarily believe was conveyed in the movie you're just covering the conspiracy theories you found on the internet right yeah and then i'll tell you why okay this theory all ties together the fact that we open with talking about there's tunnels all over underneath the united states there's the tunnels under the denver airport there's the underground mall that used to be in missouri norad cheyenne mountain all this stuff there are lots of places I think it was DARPA recently put up an ad wanting to get space underground okay really fucking weird Now, some of the real shit we have is the Doomsday Seed Vault that's stored in the Arctic or something somewhere that's (laughs) like a sampling of every known seed we can get there just in case the world's massively destroyed that we can replant everything. Oh, the elites have bought islands and bunkers everywhere. That's a fact. Mine's Um, on the moon. (laughs) But I mean, it's, it's all legit. A lot of it was bought in New Zealand. It's just this whole wormhole you can go down. The whole thing about fluoride. Okay. The American Dental Association came out and said that the health effects of ingesting fluoride orally do not, that the 
what it would do to you is worse than applying it to your teeth. We've all seen plenty of medications that say apply topically, do not ingest. Right. There's a reason your toothpaste says if swallowing more than a small amount, contact a poison control center. Fluoride is not to be taken internally. Remember, this is coming from the same government that told you alcohol, tobacco, mercury, lead, DDT. Those are all fine. What this video tries to put together is that we start off with the monkey's paw logo swirling the teacup at the opening credits. Yeah, well, that's just because his his production studio is yes. called Monkey Paw. Yes. And he his first movie fucking, had a teacup in it. Yes. And the point being that we're all in the sunken place and that the elite of the world are the ones that are actually controlling everything, that they're the ones above and we're the ones underground. We could get into I Illuminati know, conspiracies all day long. I don't think George Peele is going that route. That's as far as I'm going. I'm just saying, I'm fascinated that after 34 episodes, I find more search results on people breaking their brains trying to pull things out of this movie than anything else we've ever covered. And that is the part that fucking blows my mind. You'll find that a lot, though. It doesn't matter if it's a movie, TV show, song. Anytime somebody just like skirts the border of being political slightly, 900 people come up with a crazy conspiracy theory. Yes, but I do have to say that there's enough evidence that the people at the top do crazy fucking eyes wide shut type shit that they don't want us to know about. And the general belief in the tinfoil hat community is once you get high enough in the music business or the movie business, this is what you have to conform to or you're gone. And that the ones that have gotten out, got out, and the ones that haven't have conformed to it and have been blackmailed. And that this man is trying to use all the movies he's made so far to shed light on all <laughs> this and save us all. It's fascinating. <laughs> it's fascinating, but I do not think it's accurate. I don't think it's that either. I've researched all this shit. I believe in a lot of this shit. I don't think that's what he's doing. I think he made a movie that made so many things that were so ambiguous that he wanted to see what people would come up with on their own. And honestly, that's what I hate about ambiguity in, in movie and TV shows. Because, like, I mean, it starts these, like, little internal wars. Yeah. Of people, I'm right, you're right. And, I mean, usually the director writer's not going to step in and correct you. And that's the great thing about saying, I'm right, you're right. I think the biggest message to take away from this movie is that it's not as good as Get Out. Yes. <laughs> but that it's, there's always something dividing us. Right. We're divided by class, race, sports teams, music preferences. Yeah. It's like at every level, we all forget that we're right. human. And I really think that's a stronger meaning behind the Hands Across America part, that even the fakes did better than the haves. Not just looking at that from a class point of view, but from a a human nature point of view of, of what we should be able to do to get along, even if we had nothing. Cause if we realized we had each other, we would ignore all this other bullshit, you know, politics, religion, money, it, you know what I mean? It would all fall flat on its face. And I really think if there's any kind of hidden deep meaning right. in this movie, that it's that. I think that's why I enjoy get out more though, is it's more of like a straightforward horror movie with a little bit of slasher elements in it. And like the creepy score and the fucked up family. And then this is just like a series of weird fucking events with no explanation for it. Yeah. And I don't like spoon fed and I like being able to think about it a little bit, but I also don't like the movie being so completely fucking open that you don't know what happened. Yeah. Like that gets to me sometimes. It's still a good movie. 
And a lot of that, I mean, the cast was fucking phenomenal. Yeah. <laughs> once again, the, the lead lady, she carries the whole movie. And on first watch, I hated her as Red. I hated her, hated her hair. I hated the character Red. I could not stand the character. And going in, and once you find out the reason for why she talks the way she talks right, right. and more of, more of what happened. And then at the same time, it's like, oh, okay, I'm okay with that. But then you realize that they were swapped. And it's like, but, but now I'm not as okay with it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right. It like does this, this jerk back and forth. I don't know. I'm one of those people that I don't talk a lot about being affected by movies. I don't dig down a rabbit hole on any of these movies like I did on this one. And it made me think more and trying to put the puzzle pieces together right. is more fun than the entertainment of the movie. And I do really get the puzzle piece thing sometimes. I like it more when it's like a fictitious puzzle because I watch movies to escape reality. I know. And this one is like, if I want to see reality, I watch reality. the fucking news or go to work. Right. Like That's when I'm watching my movies, <laughs> exactly. So when I watch movies, I just want it to be like something completely fictional. But then when you see the grounding, sometimes it's fine. But that's the thing, though. Jordan Peele, no matter what his intentions were, he doesn't beat it over your head. That's why it's, yeah. you know, like, that's why you can debate it. He can put whatever he wants artistically in there, and you can just enjoy the movie as a horror movie without having to fucking think about that part too much if you wanted to. Yeah. Except for apparently some people go really, really deep into it. Really, really far. And, I, and once again, I know I've said it, but just one last time, that really is what breaks the movie for me from a pure entertainment value. I can't just watch it and go for the ride. It's... It's too open. It's just too open. And if, right. I, if I take what was given to me as the answers, it means it's a shitty movie. And I, I want to say this. The second act of the movie, the part referred to as the comedy act of the movie, yeah. is my favorite part of the movie. And I can watch that segment over and over again. Just yeah. Like, it feels totally different. Well, not totally different, but it feels. No, it does, though. You're right. It does feel like a different movie. Well, like when you see the family run around just murdering the shit out of tethers like they don't care. It's a different movie than the rest of the movie. And it's like what I brought up about it being a house at Halloween Horror Nights. Like, how are you going to be scared by a bunch of people standing around in red jumpsuits holding scissors? But they built the Taylor's living room and had that whole scene with seeing the twins get killed and all of that. And that part of the house was fun. I admitted that when at the time I didn't right. like the movie. So it, it, it shows something different and uh, it's back to him throwing everything, but the kitchen sink with it. I, I feel like it gave him the opportunity to say, like you said, this feels like a slasher. This feels right. like this, this feels like, like, let me go ahead and, and branch out a bunch of different ways right. in one film to see what I'm capable of. I would like to see him do a full on slasher movie or a full on psychological thriller, proto slasher area. Yeah. I don't know about a monster movie. I don't know yet. I'm just like, he, he does the psychological mind fuck thing enough that like just having a werewolf eating people cause he's hungry. Isn't really his thing to me. I, I want a mind fuck that doesn't tie it into the real. Yeah. Let, I don't know if we'll get that from him though. Yeah. It would almost have to be like Lovecraftian to pull that off. It's funny that you say that because I was going to talk about some of his current and future projects because he said in an interview that he doesn't do cash grabs. So he's yeah. not going to direct a movie unless he wrote it and it's something that he wanted to do. So since us, he's just wrote and produced things. He has not directed another film. He did the Twilight Zone TV show, which I've only seen one segment of. I haven't even seen a whole episode. Okay. I don't have CBS All Access. I'm going to have to get it just to marathon it. CBS, now with fucks. <laughs> but he was the writer and producer of it, and he's also the host, right? Yeah. But he did not direct it. 
but I think he's perfect to do Twilight Zone because yeah. Twilight Zone always had its kind of little hidden political. Oh yeah, it was always like social that. commentary. And then he's got Lovecraft Country coming out, which you just made me think of. It's going to be on HBO, I think, okay. and it's from a novel or novel series. I haven't read it yet, but he's just the writer and producer again, not the director. But it's in the fifties, and a man's looking for his missing father in Jim Crow America. While I guess there's monsters that could be ripped from the pages of Lovecraft stopping them. I kind of get like a Buffy vibe, I guess, if it's like a monster of the week while you're looking for your missing father or like when Supernatural was good. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because they're <laughs> traveling on the road. And I, I don't know much past what I just said, but the fact that it says Lovecraft and Peel's involved <laughs> and generally HBO shows are pretty good. I'm going to have to check it out. Okay. And the only other thing I know that he's currently working on is Candyman, which I want to say really early in the podcast, maybe even the first four episodes of the Slasher series, we might have even said he was directing it. Like maybe we had heard a rumor of that, but as of right now, he's currently just the producer. Okay. And I think it's a sequel and not a remake. Yeah. What I heard about it was that it's going to do like the new Terminator thing, that it's like the first one happened and that's it. And here's a sequel or like the new Halloween timeline. Right, right. Which is really the way to go for all these movies that have shitty sequels. Yeah, but is it, does it bother you that it's like Hollywood has figured out a way to yank the rug out from under us? It's like, they don't like sequels anymore, so we'll give them sequels and tell them they're not sequels. <laughs> well, I mean, I think <laughs> you know it's also I mean? the fact that like, there's been so many sh- shitty reboots and remakes. Yeah. The viewers don't want them anymore. So why not do a requel? <laughs> There it is. I don't know what what I'm going to call it yet, but like it's a reboot slash sequel. Honestly, though, if you can't come up with a new idea, if you're going to go back like the fucking drawing board, I'd rather get this than another remake. Yes. Give me. I mean, we talked about Halloween 2018 was fucking awesome. Like, just skip the rest of them. Right. And Candyman was what? 92. Something like that. So like there was some shit falling apart at that time. But still, if you give us up to scream 78 to 96. gotta go back to halloween and uh and do it right and then i'm okay with it but for all my bitching and going off on the conspiracy tangent at least what we're getting from peel is something different right it is i don't know for me at least it's making me think in different ways it's making me see things differently and there's people that have worried that you know he's going to be a one-trick pony like shamala and uh i don't think so i think us you know, watching Get Out and it has a twist and then Us and it has a twist. There's more to it. He's definitely an original director and somebody the genre needs right now. Yeah. And we got him and Flanagan and hopefully Juan. Well, he's got Malignant coming out, right? Yeah. So, I mean, like, I guess these are our three shining lights of horror right now. <laughs> Please carry us, guys. The Trinity, if you will. It was definitely a different thing to cover. Yeah. It was less direct than most of the other horror movies while also being spooky as shit. Yeah. No, it feels like we went off the rails, so to speak, straight up into psychological horror on this episode. Oh, but I like me some psychological horror. And we got into some deep subject matter, but uh, maybe it'll be a little bit lighthearted on the next episode. That's it for the Jordan Peele episode. So you guys are going to have to tune in on the next episode when we cover demons. I mean, you guys were serious about that demon We're going back to some old school root horror movies. Yes. As usual, guys, thanks for downloading the show and spreading the word. Please do not forget to rate and review us online. And please, please send us comments, questions, and suggestions to our email, sbspodcast at gmail.com. 
We would also love it if you could follow our Twitter and Instagram, both at SBIS Podcast. This might motivate us to use them more. See you guys in the next one. Thanks for listening. One of a kind, top of the line, a real doggone keeper.